Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Hey, Miguel Iterate, back here on the Lights Out podcast. That's the MMA detective, Mike Davis, as usual. And uh, we got a special podcast here for you, Deep Dive Territory, where we thrive, we love it. And we're going to bring Chris Lytle in as usual, but not as usual. Mike, what's going on? What do we got for Chris? Okay, so first and foremost, J-H-U Media, J-E-H-U Media helped us with this. If you're watching this on YouTube, all the fight footage that is layered over the conversations, it was courtesy of himself. He really, really pushed hard. If you guys like more videos like this, we absolutely have the capability of doing it, but we need help. Uh, honestly, it's like we're, we're kind of doing this. Miguel, myself, you know, we got a little bit of help, but we need as much help as we can get if you want more videos like this. Um, what we're going to do is 50 Fight Club member, Chris Lytle. Miguel, that's a, a term you coined and that we're, we're running with. And we decided for our 50th episode that it would be best to have, you know, maybe just take a look at Chris's career. He's a 50 Fight Club member, and we've never concentrated on the Pancreas organization. So... Let's start there. You know, maybe for the 100th episode, we'll, we'll take care of his, you know, WEC and UFC career. But right now, there's not a lot of footage that exists for Pancrase, which we obviously have. And I, I think it worked out great. I thought the interview went, is, you know, going to go well. Yeah, you know, he's our guy. It's his podcast. And uh, but I do think that the Pancrase years are kind of something that people superficially know. Oh, we fought Jason Delucia or, you know, oh, this, that, or that. But to get deep dive territory with them, we're in new territory here. And, and I want to thank our buddy Jonah Williams, too, for joining us, the third head of the yep. interview as we grill Chris Lytle here. Uh, Jonah's been with us since the very beginning. He pinch hits for us whenever we need. He was actually the cameraman for the recent Shoney Carter interview, so a jack of all trades, and uh, he's going to show his worth here uh, with us when we bring Chris Lytle in. Are you ready, Mike? Let's do it, brother. Let's go. Chris Lytle. Lights Out Podcast, number 50, The Pancrase Years. Thing. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast. We've got a super special episode today. A lot of the guests we have on, they say they come on for one reason, because they couldn't possibly say no to Chris Lights Out Lytle, an absolute pioneer in the sport. The sport is a super fast-growing sport, but he was one of those guys the sport had to catch up to. Uh, he had everything we're going to talk about that a little bit today he had so much and some of these promoters and promotions had to actually hold him back a little bit uh you know we're, we're going to dis discuss that how some rules may or may not have been played with but man this guy he he brings us all here very special episode 50 we're going to do a deep dive with the man himself chris lyle so how you guys doing today thank you very much joan i think it's it, it, Chris is the reason we're here in this podcast from day one. But now for the 50th podcast, he's like double, like now he's like the focus and we're going to interview him. So thank you very much, Chris, for everything you've done for us. And I can't think of a better guess. It was actually the MMA detectives idea and, you know, 50 fight club podcast, number 50, Chris. Got to do it. The deep dive with Chris Lytle, the Pancrase years, Mike, the early 90s. Yeah. Let's go. So, 
Woo. So what right happens on. is it's a lot easier when we focus on the UFC years. But then when you concentrate like on pre-UFC 1, a lot of crazy stories, it kind of doubles the, uh, <coughs> the time of research. But then when you go to Pancrase, Chris, man, first off, Miguel two days ago tells me, oh, yeah, well, we're doing Chris on this date at noon. Usually we, we tape at night. I, I went on like a 25-hour binge just <laughs> on Pancreas. My old lady's about to leave me because of this. So I'm just you know, putting it out there. Thank you, Miguel. 50 fights. You know, 55 club member Chris Lytle, 50th episode. And Thank you, Mike. And first of all, uh, she's going to leave you for other reasons. You can blame it on this, but there's, <laughs> this is just the straw that's breaking the camel's back, but go ahead. Uh, you know, Chris, sometimes you got to keep things behind the curtain. That's Those are obvious. <laughs> what you just said is obvious. Um, you know, the thing about your pancreas years is that on your record, it appears that your second actual fight is with pancreas, but I know through our relationship, that's not the case. How many fights do you have that are pre-February 13th, 1999, neutral grounds 10? How many predate that Bo Hirschberger fight? Um, I think I was about eight or nine and zero at the time. I thought I remember when I went to Japan, I was like 10 and 0. Um, is what I thought. I think my record would have been announced that. So uh, you, you got to understand in the mid mid 1998 when I started fighting you know they, they didn't they didn't really have any records you know the I, I know the internet was there but I mean you look on it in seven there was they even announced some of these oh this you know the the underground they talk about some of these fights and they'd announce but I mean if they they went back and if there was no like sanctioning body they're out of there they didn't put them in there so uh, I remember my my second fight that you, you talked about the one you know that it was in Muncie uh, I think my second fight was in Muncie, actually. It was a tournament for Chaz Bowling. And uh, we talk about learning earlier in your career, getting ripped off by a promoter. That happened, so I never fought <laughs> for him again. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was going to ask you, take us back to, like, those fights before the okay. record shows because there were a lot of promoters in Indiana. Chaz Bowling being one of them. You know, Chad Wagner, there was us in, down in Evansville. Um, there were other people you, I don't know if Keith Palmer had promoted yet, but you actually had some good promoters around you too. And, yeah. uh, so where was this actual first fight at Chris Lytle? First fight was in Richmond, Indiana. Um, I think it was, might've been Don Thomas or something. I can't remember. Um, he was, there was, there was, you know, I've been training for a few months and, you know, just wanting to fight, you know what I mean? Wanting to fight, wanting to fight. And then finally, you know, Aaron Sullivan, a guy I was training with, was like, I got you guys a fight. Me and my buddy Eric was like, we're at, uh, you know, it's going to be in Richmond, man. You go to this place. It was like in the basement of some, I don't know, man. It was like, it looked like something from Fight Club. You know, it was dark and there was like water dripping here and there. They had to hold the cage together. It was so bad. There might have been chickens running around. I don't know. It was something like that. You know, it was. <laughs> It was bad. Who refed? Do you remember what was going on there? <laughs> I don't even know if they had refs. <laughs> I can't remember, but that one was my, it was like, I fought there actually twice, but uh, yeah, that was one. It was just, uh, just want to get my feet wet, you know, go in there and uh, went against a pretty tough guy. You know, there, there was uh, some guys there that were rotten, but I could tell this guy, I think he even wore a gi, but I mean, it was, you could tell he trained some. 
but I was just, you know, better athlete, better wrestler, and I ended up submitting the guy. So, but it was the second one that, you know, I remember after that, I'm up training with a guy named um, Eddie Moore and some of those guys. I don't know if you remember the name. He was a kind of big police officer. Boss up. And uh, I was training up there, and that Chad Bowling came in. I was like, hey, I'm putting this tournament on up in uh, Muncie. You know, if you want, the, the winner of the tournament gets $250. I'm like, saying, 250 all at once? You know, is this over a payment? <laughs> How are you going to pay somebody $250? Whatever. This is in 98, so you got to understand there wasn't much money. So I was like, man, I'm going to fight and get paid 250 bucks. Jesus. So I, I show up there, and um, for some reason, only three people, it was an eight-man tournament, only three people there in my weight class. So um, I fought the first one, and the first guy I fought was the same guy I fought in Richmond, Indiana. <laughs> so my first two fights were the same damn guy. You know what I mean? So I beat him, and then the other guy in the tournament was like, yeah, I don't want no part of this. So he left. So so you won by I, default. Yeah. So I go in to get in the ring at the end. I'm looking at the other guy. I'm like, he's huge, you know? And he, I, I tried to get in the 185-pound the category to fight him on accident. You know, I didn't know. I, I, they just told me to go to the cage, and I go in there, and he's looking at me like, you're not the same right guy I was supposed to fight. And then I found out he fought somebody else, and, like, my guy quit. So I'm like, all right, I, I win by default. And that's when, you know, we went to – Bar, uh, the, the bar to get paid and Chad's like I remember he counts out like five twenty dollar bills like there you go I'm like whoa hey hold on you know you said 250 for the winner he's like Chris you only had to fight once I'm like that's not my fault I won the tournament the other guy backed out and you didn't fill the tournament you know you said 250 to the winner he's like Chris I fought over a hundred times I never got any money I'm gonna lose money I was like dude the place is back I was like, we argued for about five minutes I'm like you know what piss off never fight free again, give me the money. And I never fought for him again. And it always, you know, I knew how his promoters were then. I was like, man, you could have, looking back, I'm like, you could have, if you would have taken care of me, I probably would have fought for you for years. You know what I mean? But you ripped me off for 150 bucks and hopefully it cost you a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, especially well, if you make up the $250 mark, he made that up. That was, you know, yeah. he probably uh yeah, yeah, I'm like, dude, I won the tournament. You know, what do you mean? I only fought once. Yeah, but that was the tournament. You know, I'm sorry the other guy backed out, and I'm sorry that nobody would, you know, I don't know. It's not my fault. I'm going to take a wild guess and guess that Chaz didn't mail you, like, you know, even a two-page contract or anything with a little bit of details, like a week before or anything like that. Nothing, no paperwork? Paperwork. Man, there was no such thing. You showed up that night, and whoever was there was there. You know I mean? There was no... Yeah. Well, you know, the contract in, helps with little details like that. Just, you know, yeah. that would come later. <laughs> you, you, back then, though, Chris, I think we can agree everything was based on reputation. Like your credit score, you know, you got 750, 800 credit score. It kind of applied the same way in the mixed martial art community because it was so small. Your reputation, people's reputations, they spread, they went everywhere. And people weren't afraid to kind of let other people know their experiences like like you just had described the problem was there like you said <clears throat> there was a lot of reputable people in indy so or in indiana so i would say so he was a guy who was putting on fights and a lot of people fought for him because they just didn't know any better you know and, you know if he could make money off you he he might take care of you but he didn't know who i, I was nobody back then it's my second fight so he didn't think he had to and I, you know, it is were you a big ticket seller um not up in Muncie, Indiana back then. You know what I mean? I, I had some people come, but I mean, 
you know, back, I was 98, you know, I was brand new in the sport and, uh, you know, I, I wasn't out there at that point. I had been training, you know, less than six months. I'm out there trying to, can everybody come watch me? I didn't know how good I was, was going to be good or not. When you go there, you get your ass beat. That'd have been different. You know what I mean? So you just, I didn't know if I was very good or not. I mean, I knew, I thought I was good, but it was just, yeah, I wasn't in the mode to just go sell a bunch of tickets right then. So at this time, were you training with integrated fighting or was this something that predated that? This predated that. Um, I was training with Aaron Sullivan, mainly a guy named Eric Gettick. And uh, that's when Jason Geisley would come to the gym every now and again. You know, so that's when I was, and you know, it wasn't until right around this time when I start fighting, when people start training together a little bit more. And then everybody kind of decided, hey, man, we can make a go at this and actually make a gem. And then, then integrated was developed. It probably wasn't developed for to probably at least 1999. That's wild. That's wild. All right. Well, here, your, your first fight on record is Neutral Grounds 10. The yeah. California promotion that was, you mentioned Muncie, Indiana. Operated out of Muncie, where he fought Bo Hirschberger. Yeah. That day, I mean, obviously, we're, we're fast forward. It's probably like your ninth fight. Um, when you pulled up to the venue, did you understand that how big mixed martial arts would become a part of your life and what an integral part? Like, were, were you just sold on this is what I'm going to be? Not at, at all, man. Not at all. It was just... <clears throat> It was just something to do, something that was fun for me and something I was doing well at and I was good at. And so, you know, you have a competitive nature. I was a wrestler and I played all kinds of sports and then that's just over. There's nothing to do. But that, like, if you're, if you're a, like, really tough, hard-nosed, like, wrestler and that's over, you kind of want to do that at some point. You know, I mean, I was, I was doing it for peanuts back then just for, for fun and, and I enjoyed it. But I remember... I remember how that fight came about because if you look Bo Hershberg up, he was a lot bigger than me. He was probably 200 pounds. I'm guessing. I don't know. And I remember, you know, Jason, Jason Gatsby at the time was, uh, you know, he was fighting over in Japan. And that's when I, when I saw he was over in Japan, I was like, man, are you kidding me? I want to go over there and, and fight. And he was, you know, kind of the leader of our group. And so he was, uh, he was just it. And um, if he told you to do something, you kind of did it. And I remember he called me up once. He's like, hey, man, I got a fight for you. I'm like, all right, who is he? He's like, hey, this guy named Borisberg. He's like, he, uh, he beat Olog Tiktarov in, uh, in Abu Dhabi. But, uh, yeah, that's all right. He's like, he's like, Olog was doing cocaine on some shit, on some yacht for two days beforehand. So he's not that great. <laughs> that was his excuse. I was like, all right. <laughs> so, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly, yeah. It's all legend. So I was like, all right. So, <laughs> uh, I show up to the venue. I remember it was in Montreal, and uh, like I had to work the day before, so I'm sleeping. And I, I get there, rode in the back of Jason's van, and, and I get there. I'm like, all right. And uh, remember, I see this bullhorn part. I'm like, Jesus, man. I mean, I was probably 173. You know, I, I was still light back then, and this dude had to be 200 pounds. I'm like, there was no, we didn't, there was no way. I didn't step on a scale. I didn't do anything, man. I was just, you went there to fight, and. um I remember one of the guys I used to train with, uh, Lane Andrews. You remember a guy named Lane Andrews? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Remember, he, he fought before me, another guy who was, like, with Bo Hersberg's crew, like the people from California. And he just got pieced up, man. I remember his head, he came in after the fight, and he had all these, like, cage marks on his head, you know, from his head being smushed in the cage, and all these lines. I was thinking, Jesus, I watched the fight, and he just got pieced together the whole time. So I knew they were bringing some – some tough guys, they weren't coming to Indiana to lose. 
Wow. I remember Lane actually, I think Lane did an IVC, didn't he? Yeah, he, he was a good fighter, but I mean, he, just, yeah, he was a I, tough fighter. I know I was with him at one of the IVCs. So yeah, I know who you're talking about. So and he had some some skills. So, yeah, Neutral Grounds was a serious show for back then. I remember sitting around waiting. Like, I remember when Joe Pardo got into the UFC and waiting around to get his Neutral Ground tapes because he had fought on that show and obviously the Gracie fights and stuff. But just waiting to get tapes from Neutral Grounds and stuff, like, you know, back in the old tape trading days. So, they, <laughs> I, I I had not realized that they had ventured to Indiana to do a show. That, that's news. I don't know where that came from or anything, but they came. I remember it was just a big, it was like just, there's a boxing ring and they put up four cage walls. You know what I mean? So it was a square. Kind of like what uh, Monty Cox was doing back in the day. Yeah. I mean, yeah, cages didn't know. exist. Like the whole prehab structure where they all kind of clip in. Those, yeah. were, th those cages didn't really come about to about 2003, 2004. So yeah. this is something that's got to be kind of like Jimmy rigged beforehand. It's probably a giant pain in the butt to do and take down and put up again. Like it, it wasn't th those types of situations weren't real user friendly. On top of that, let's talk about how the fight went. You knocked him out in the first round. Was that a surprise to you? First, that's a, that's not correct. First of all, there was no first, second, third round. It was one round, like one okay. 15 minute round. <laughs> so I'm right. <laughs> you knocked him out in the first round <laughs> and that's incorrect i didn't knock him out so oh. i i go out there and i remember he was so much bigger man i was thinking geez what am i gonna do against this guy and he came at me i knew he's primarily a grappler so the first thing i did i threw a real hard kick boom right in the stomach and knocked him back and i think he kind of looked at me kind of funny he wouldn't expect that and he came at me and i hit him with the big right hand and took him down and he kind of pulled guard and so I remember this. I was I pushed him. I was over in his corner, and I could hear his guys in the corner. You know, they were telling him, "Bo, do this, Bo. Oh, he hits like a bitch, Bo." He's and I remember it was it was Wild West back then. So the gloves that Jason gave me to wear were like you know those knee pads, those like knee, like white knee pads that were just like uh, had like a cushion in them, and it was yeah. Those were like. Those were what I was wearing on my hands. Like, <laughs> there was nothing to them. But I don't know where he got his gloves either. So there was nothing in them. So I, they're taped up, and I'm in his guard, and I'm, uh, I'm just spraying it out. Pads? It wasn't really knee pads. It was, it was hand. They were like gloves, but they were, there was very little to them. They were just like a, a pad right there. It was, it was the the same Omano, Were they the huh? Omano ones? I don't remember what they were, but they were nothing. It, no, it was very. Either. These may have been the Godseat specials. <laughs> okay. And whatever. So I. Sorry, and the, the promoter provided you these gloves. These aren't the ones. No. Who, yeah. No, they, they said bring BYOG, you know, bring your own gloves. BYOG. <laughs> you, let, you let me bring my own shit. That's what I'm bringing. And so yeah. I remember I'm hitting him. I'm, I'm like, I'm doing like military style, like body, body, head. Bam, bam. And I remember his corners, like, he hits like a bitch, Bo. He hits like, and then, uh, you know, after about five minutes, you know, they're going, uh, Bo, you need to get up, man. Bo, Bo, you need to get up. Bo, you got to pull, you got to do something. You got to try and sweep them. And I'm just, I'm, I'm beating the brakes off, you know, these little no glove gloves. Um, bam, bam. And every time I hit him, his head's going back. And, um, I do that for about 11 minutes straight and just beat the piss out of him and finally get him in like, just like that forearm in your throat crush. And he just <laughs> It wasn't even a good submission, but I beat him up for about 11 minutes, and he's like, I'm out. I, I got nothing left. So it was uh, a choke. 
It was a choke. Yeah, it was a choke. Because online, everyone, everybody's listening as a KO round one. Well, because no I video. hit him a lot, and I was hitting him a lot, but really, it was just, it might have been the the punches that added up, but really, I just you know, I I, I put my four minutes through and pushed down, like got to run this four. <clears> or, <throat> I, I I choked him till he quit, but it was more the punches that led to that. Okay, so one month later, I mean, that's February thirteenth, nineteen ninety nine, on March eighteenth, nineteen ninety nine. You figured out how to make that Japan connection, and you made your pancreas <laughs> debut against Osami Shibi. Wait, wait, Miguel, stop, stop, Miguel. Shibiu. No, Shibuya. 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 You're never gonna get that right. You would. No, you know what, dude, Miguel. I, just, just correct me from here on out. Maybe well, I, I just kind of point to you and you say the name because it, I'm never gonna hear the end of this. Shibuya, Shibuya is easy. There's actually a neighborhood in Japan. In Tokyo, called Shibuya too. So yeah, that that's an easy one. I, but right before this, Chris, I think that uh, I've heard a story. I want you to tell it. Where uh, this was actually supposed to be Brett Alzawi shot, uh, an early guy or something like no. that. And talk yeah, talk about that connection. But clean it up for me. Yeah. So uh, Jason Gasson called me and said, "Hey man, come over. I need you to help me train. We got this guy." They're sending out Brett Alzawi. Phil's just sending him down. Because to go to Japan, you had to go through Phil Slee. That was it. There was no other way. And so Wait, she was Phyllis Lee, manager. early MMA manager, used to do the women's pro wrestling circuit with like traveling circuses. Some would say she's a little rough around the edges. So go ahead, Chris. Mm-hmm. If you ever watch UFC 4 with like Dan Severin, you know, she's the old lady like standing on the side of the cage. You know, yeah, that, that's with her. a cane. With, with a cane. <laughs> So, so she, I mean, I knew who she was from Jason. Jason was going to Japan. So like, I, like she was kind of a big deal to me. Like I wanted her to be my manager. Cause like, man, she has all the connections. And so um, she calls Jason. Like I got this guy, Brett Alzawi is supposed to come. He's supposed to fight. I think it was a uh, Yuki Kondo or so. I can't remember who he's supposed to fight somebody good. Yikes. And so Jason had me come to work out with this guy. And um <laughs> I'm just like mopping the floor with this guy. I'm submitting him here, submitting him here. And this guy gets all mad. He's like, I'm what the hell's going on? He's like, you guys are pancracing me. I'm not doing this. I'm out of the fight. I'm not going. He said we were pancracing him. I, I think he used it as a verb incorrectly. <laughs> like he knew what was going on. But he had a hold of Phyllis. He's like, I'm not going. He's like, I, you know, I go to Indiana and this, he was from Michigan. He's like, I go to Indiana and this guy who I weigh by about 15 pounds. He just submitted me like five times. I'm out. So he, he said, I told Phil, I'll do it. You know, I don't care who it is. It's Yuki Kondo. So I don't care. I don't know who's that. So she said I would do it. And they got back with me. And they go, well, we're not going to let him do this one. But we'll keep him in mind. And then they, they had me come to the next one. I was like, cool. So that was that's they, when you fought Osami uh, Shibuya. So, Shibuya. So in this, like, Pancrase has got kind of a revolving rule set. And in this one, it was... Gloves, but no shin pads. One 15-minute round. He, at the time, um, is 19, 19, and 8. 19 wins, 19 losses, 8 draws. And technically speaking, like, your record shows that this is – you're 1-0, even though you're 10-0, technically. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and that was weird back then. Pancrase had no weight class. One thing I liked about it, you know, they had the king of Pancrase, and that was open for anybody. I was like, I, I mean, it was still old school. You know, they had – very few people were doing like weight classes, you know, even in this. I mean, they are starting to do it in the States, but in Japan, there wasn't. And I love that aspect of it. I was like, man, I want to be 
you know, the, the king of the hill, you know what I mean? So I, I wanted to go over there like that until I got over there. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I remember, I remember Phyllis said, Chris, they want you to fight. She goes, how much do you weigh? Please tell me you weigh 190. I go, I weigh 191. She goes, okay. I got there. I weighed like 175. And you can see they were they were speaking Japanese, and they were not happy. (laughs) They were like, you know, they 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 were not happy. I was like, I got sick and I couldn't eat. I was trying to make up excuses and stuff. They were uh they were not happy because I was a lot smaller than this guy. He 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 was probably another 200 pound guy. He was he was a big, pretty. He had this big old head. You know, like uh Bert or Ernie. Which one has a big head? He kind of looked like him. So is this your first time flying to a fight and leaving? The oh, country? yeah. Oh, dude, for sure. I mean, I, I'd left the country for, but never, uh, never for fights. And hell, man, it was it was by far my first time flying. I mean, every other flight had been the Midwest. I'd been to like Chicago. I fought for Bob Shermer at one point. I'm sure you guys know him, Mike from Chicago, Dave. Um, and, uh, you know, I just fought around the Midwest, not, not even anywhere <laughs> regional, just, just local kind of. And then, then I get like, you know, like I said, I got to 10 and 0. It feels to see me fight a couple of times. And I won that fight against Bo Hirschberg. They're like, yeah, we'll send you over and happen. That's cool. That's cool. So no, with Shibuya, it was, uh, you could see there was a lot of experience on his side, but you never quit. Like, I would say it was, it was a draw. The fight ended in a draw. Was it because there was no judges or? What, what it was, was Pancrase was trying to transition because before they had, it was just <clears throat> pure Pancrase, you know, so the, the big gloves, no weapon, no open-handed or closed fist strikes to the head, um, mainly submission-based, and they were trying to get in the MMA realm, uh, realm. So this fight was 100% anything goes. You could heel hook, you could headbutt, you could knee to the head of a ground, you could kick soccer, kick guy, you could do any of that stuff. Um and so, you know, which was more what I was used to anyway. So I was like, cool, you know, this will be good for me. One of my favorite moves back then was kneeing a guy to the head on the ground and making him roll over and I could choke him. So I had that, you know, sometimes back in uh, the Midwest. And so I figured it'll, it'll be just like this. And like I said, I love the idea of having no weight class. So I got there, I was like, this dude's not only really big, but he's really skilled. They trained I mean, they, they really trained there. It was a real sport. And, and they the lived reason people, together. A lot of them lived together in a barrack, the oh pancreas yeah. fighters. The reason they were, the records were not good was because all they did was fight each other. I mean, they had about 20 fighters, and they would fight each other all the time, and they'd bring in some outside guys from the States or from <coughs> Europe or from Australia, Australia. And they'd get some wins there. But, I mean, you're fighting just cream of the crop every time. You know, it was different. It was like a fight league. And nobody had a great, really, record besides Yuki Kaido, really, maybe. So, in, if you watch the fight, I would say, Chris, about 70% of the bout, you're being out-positioned. But right. at the end, right as you guys get to close to the 15-minute mark, you're on top, and you're starting to pull away. And you could see the difference in, like, cardio and shape. And at that time, a lot of guys didn't have – just the, the knowledge or wherewithal to kind of get their cardio up or understanding of when and when not to breathe. And to me, that, that was kind of like one of your attributes, your early attributes that kind of separated you from everybody else. And it showed in that fight. Well, I think that was just from me uh, having years of wrestling experience and understanding when I had to waste 
or spend energy and when I didn't. And uh, like I said, I remember at one point it, early in the fight, you know, I'm scrambling, I'm doing some things, and I end up on bottom of him thinking, man, this guy. It's the first time I said, I'm not going to knock this guy out. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to submit him. You know, and I remember just thinking, geez, you got to buckle down and really, you got you to finish this fight and you got to go all out. And I remember at one point, it was about 10 minutes into the fight, I stood up and got away and I like just was so tired, I fell into the ropes. <laughs> and they're like, you okay? I was like, oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, it was just my legs were gone because like I never, <laughs> I never went that long, that hard. I mean, this is a big, strong guy. There's a big difference. I was training maybe two to three days a week. We were coming and having fun and going. And when I start, when I, they were training six days a week, twice a day hard, you know, they, they were superior in their conditioning, but I mean, I, it was just a different thing. So I remember, you know, I remember when I thought, I don't know how I'm going to finish this fight and how hard is it going to be? And I remember after going 15 minutes straight with this guy, I mean, I was happy to get a draw. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> so at that time, did you, when did you realize that your relationship with the pancreas, um, you know, the, the people that are running it, was really good? Three weeks later, you're back again fighting on the very next event, Pancreas 73, Breakthrough 7 against Jason DeLuca. No, not true. Um, I really? Thought, what happened I'm going was, by your online record, by the way, I might add. Okay. Right after that, um, they had me come back. I, Phyllis talked to him for him. She's like, he loved it. He wants to come back. And they had me come and stay for like, uh, it was like six weeks. I fought before that. And I and, and this was really awkward because they had me stay in, in the oh, Yokohama Dojo. There's two, there's two events in between that. I apologize. Yeah. So you fought in Pancreas 70 and this is Pancreas 73. I apologize. Go ahead. But in Pancreas like 72, I fought. I fought. They, they flew me in. They said, okay, you're going to stay at the gym in Yokohama. So I had two gyms, Yokohama and Tokyo. So Yokohama is out in the middle of nowhere. There's like rice fields around. It's just, there's nothing around, you know? So I went and stayed there. It was like really is hot. You had, I mean, it was, it was, it, anyway, I stayed there and I fight one of the guys from that gym. He was kind of a newer guy, but uh, I submitted him, you know, I think, yeah, he was a I'm big. That. He was a big pro wrestler type. That was like a, uh, like his. He had a brother that fought too, Daisuke Watanabe. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I fight him, and um, I do remember he like at one point he kneed me in the stomach early, and I was like, oh, and I couldn't breathe. I pulled guard. It's probably the only time you're ever gonna see me pull guard. I pulled guard. <laughs> By the time I got better, I got back up, and I'm beating him on my stand up, and I uh, I end up submitting him with a with a guillotine choke. And then what was really awkward was. Then I go back and I live in that gym for the next six weeks and I had to train with the guy, son, you know? So it was like really awkward because, you know, afterwards I see this guy and he's crying, you know, he's like in tears in the back room. And I'm like, Oh, oh you know, I didn't realize this was like, to me, this was fun. This was what I like to do. This was his job. You know what I mean? And so I go there and that's when I really learned these guys like twice every day, you know, besides Sunday, you know, they'd show up in the morning. We either do some weightlifting. We'd go for like a five-mile run. We'd do some kind of plyometric. We'd do something, you know what I mean? And then at night, you know, they'd come in and they'd do a, a, a lot of sparring, just grappling forever. So that's when I really learned 
what it takes to be good at this sport. And that's when I changed my own philosophy. I was like, Jesus, he's got, I, here's what I thought as soon as I went there, I said, how am I beating anybody here? You know, like, how did I ever beat somebody here? You know, because these guys are training way harder than I am. And that's when I said, I'm not going to get outworked by anybody. Now, I worked as, just as hard as anybody at my gym and any, but that was different. And these guys are training hard every day. And so I took it like, when I left there, I was in some phenomenal shape. I mean, all I was doing was, you know, staying there, training. We'd eat this big uh, – every day they'd make this food called chunko, this big bowl of, you know, just all these vegetables, a few meats, and, and all the fighters could eat it whenever they – they'd be there. You know, they didn't live there, but I lived there with some of the new guys. It was very strange, but uh, – you know, it, it really taught me how, I mean, I remember at one point going in there with some of those guys and going with like Minnow on them and Suzuki and they'd be like, all right, we're going to do uh, 10 rounds, you know, five minute rounds right now. Um, change people all the time, go. And I was like, dude, that's, that's a long time. <laughs> it was in the middle of the summer. It was so hot in there. I mean, they had no air conditioning, I would say, but I mean, you're, and you're, that's where I really learned how to stay out of ankle locks and how to stay out of moves because I mean we just went hard all the time with each other. It was it was it was tough. Now uh, it was like the fighter, but they forgot to tape it. What's that? It kind of sounds like the Ultimate Fighter reality show, but they forgot to tape it. That, that, they didn't want that tape. That was their like. Per, yeah. I mean, I don't even know if you were supposed to talk about. It's it kind of private. You know what I mean? It was different. Were there other Americans there, or were you the only? No, uh, no I was the only American there. And to be honest with you, the guys who stayed at the gym, none of them spoke English. Their TV was in Japanese. I remember, like, Ito would show up sometimes, like, oh, Ito, how you doing? Because he could actually speak English. So I'd like it. Other times, I'd ask people, and they'd, they'd just look at me and go, mm, maybe. They'd always say, like, what the hell is that? Maybe. You know, so that was all I'd get. So I had no idea. I mean, it was it was a lonely time being there, man. I mean, I was, I was lonely with people because I, I couldn't speak to anybody. No TV, no radio. It was before cell phones, so it was just different, man. I remember if I wanted to, I wanted to call my 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 girlfriend at the time. I have to get on a bike and ride for about a half an hour to the train station, and then I'd call. And it was weird. <laughs> hey, so you mentioned Suzuki. Talk about because Pancrase is definitely an old school place with with like pecking orders, and Suzuki's one of the oh. legends. Uh, Funaki's one of the legends. Talk about what impression they made on you, because you know, I, I get the impression when they walk in the room, Ito and Shibuya, oh. and everybody's like, "Whoa!" You know, what man, I mean? it really opened my eyes to the hierarchy of how things go there. Um, you know, Suzuki was in charge of the uh, Yokohama Dojo. You know what I mean? Uh, Funaki okay. was in charge of Tokyo Dojo. So. You know, the P lab there. So uh -huh. I was always around Suzuki mainly, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, they have a great deal of reverence for him. So he, he's one of the original founders, one of the original fighters for him, uh, one of the big name guys. So um, he was, he was teaching, he was instructing, you know, and uh, not me much because I couldn't speak much. So, I mean, I just kind of do whatever they did. Um, but, you know, they'd speak in Japanese and they'd all, somebody talked to me, uh, you know, grapple five minutes okay you know i do whatever they said but uh yeah it, it was really it, you could see the pecking order like whoever had been there seniority means everything you know and, and it, it kind of got on my nerves at one point i remember they have what they call the young boys and the young boys are the guys who are trying to become fighters you know they're not really fighters yet they right out of high school like okay you're gonna live here so i was already a, a made fighter i was a known fighter so when i would 
they would have to make my food, do my laundry. I'd leave, I'd, I'd go in my little room. I'd come back and my like sandals would be like facing the right direction. They'd like take care of me because they were, that was, they had to pay their homage to the, the elders, you know, and, and I was considered one of those because I, I, I already fight for those guys. I remember at one point, the guy who was kind of like the most senior young boy, he was yelling at one of the other young boys for not doing the things right. I don't know what he was doing wrong, but he was speaking him in Japanese. Like, and he he like hit him in the head and the other guy just was bowing. He's like, yeah. And I was like, dude, what, what, what's going on? I was like, dude, this is not right. I was getting pissed because I was thinking I got to stand up for this other guy. But then I kind of, I noticed, I was like, that, that's how things are here, man. This is a different <laughs> way of thinking. You know, there's a hierarchy that I don't understand, but I was learning about it. And so this guy, the, the first young boy, he's in charge of all the other young boys. He's getting in trouble by Suzuki for not getting, for these guys messing up. So it's his responsibility to get them in line or he's going to get beat on. So, because I remember Suzuki was Suzuki, Suzuki is me. He was grappling this. The guy that's talking about the oldest young boy, he's choking the guy. And the guy's tapping out, and he's not really letting go. And finally, he let him go, and the guy's about unconscious, and he slap him. And then he put him in another move. I was like, dude, he was beating the piss out of this kid. I was like, dude. But I didn't understand it. He was he was getting in trouble for not getting these other guys in line. So that guy's job was to get those guys in line. He was going to do it no matter what. It, that, that's just how things are. It's, it's a totally different way of thinking that I wasn't ready for. But uh, it, it, it was eye-opening. And But like I said, Zuki had – everybody's respect because he, he was one of the original guys who did it. And he had, I mean, people knew how good he was and how tough he was and how mean he was. And he was just, he, he was a badass. I mean, he, he was very, he was well ahead of his time. So when we talk about like early pancreas, you're talking about people that live in barracks that got housing, food. It's kind of like black house, early black house days. The difference is, is, that these pancreas events are held in really small venues. Like some of the venues that I saw you fighting, Chris, look like they seated like 1,500 people, 1,600 yeah. people. And the <laughs> amount of overhead needed in order to make this machine run, it seemed like you needed more people at the events. You needed a consistent weekly event in order to do it. Were you aware of how some of the money was kind of flowing in order to pay for all these, all these expenses? I knew they had sponsors i knew that back then i know it was on i can't remember the name but it was on some tv there as well so that helped and, and like the first time i fought it was in a place i think it's about five thousand people so some of the smaller ones corrigan hall whatever yeah they have maybe 1500 but some of them have, and they were always on was it sky tv what was it was some tv thing that the fights were on so it was being broadcast to to japan hmm. i was actually wondering about that because it looked like it looked like some of these venues are pretty small but they're so quiet and a lot of times venues look small but just the silence of the audience like were they really small places or did they just come across as small on video because well, the sedate like, audience like i said some of them were mike was probably right about 1500 and then like i said i remember when the first ones i fought in it was probably five thousand. you know what i mean so like man it was the biggest place i'd ever fought in before and i remember remember when fighting shibuya uh at one point like I'm on bottom and headbutts were legal. So I remember I'm on bottom, I'm holding on. And he kind of peeled my head back and whack. And I remember he headbutted me. And I remember, you know, when you're sitting here, I'm trying to hold and all of a sudden white flash, everything goes white. And I kind of laid back, I pull him in tight. And I look over at the big screen, I can see me. There's a big screen too. So I can see me and I move around like, 
right, I'm okay. Like I didn't know until I saw. I was like, oh, I'm okay. But then started fighting. This that was the first time I ever had a white flash. I was like, ugh. Well, you know, all of a sudden everything goes white for a second. Like, well, what happened? What just happened? Like, like somebody just took a picture of you. You know, and a flash is in your face, and all of a sudden you go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. Let's go. Let's keep fighting. And, <laughs> Uh, the, the big screen helped me out there, but like I said, that was because it was at a big venue with probably 5,000. But a lot of them weren't that big. They were they were smaller, but they were on Sky TV or, or something like that. I can't remember what it was. Like, I, I, I can tell you, I in terms of details, I don't know if the timing is right, but for example, Pancrase for a while ran uh, with a sponsor from uh, a store in Japan called Don Quixote. Don Quixote is like, Similar to Walmart, like you can go in and buy everything, but everybody in Japan knows it. And the owner of that is a very big fan that that uh, was a, probably the main sponsor of Pancras for many years. I don't know if it goes to back then, but for example, that's how it ran. And I know that you know the, the owner of that liked liked his Pancras. He liked his fighting. Yeah. Okay. Well, just just for time's sake, I'm only in the third fight. So, <laughs> but. Okay, I got like twenty more. So we, okay, let's <laughs> say you know we got to hit fast forward. Okay, but, you know, Chris, want to do that ten hour? You know, deep dive. I'm in too myself. Um, we got Jason Deluca. Your your third fight in uh, Japan. It's Pancreas yeah. seventy three uh, breakthrough seven. You're listed online as two zero and one, and uh, Jason's record is twenty nine and thirteen with a two and one record in the UFC. Yeah, and I remember I was super excited about that fight because he was ranked fourth in Pancrase at the time for the king of Pancrase style. He was ranked like fourth. I was like, man, a win here really helped jumpstart my career. And um, he was awkward. He was a weird dude, man. I mean, not only his actions, I'm not his personality, but just the way he moves and the way he does stuff, you know? And he was doing like the robot in, he, in, he was in like, the beginning. He comes like, there, I'm like, what you it just took me a minute to figure out, but... um. I was very disappointed. I felt like I did enough to win the fight. And I think I lost a majority decision or something. I think some, I don't remember. I don't think it was unanimous. I don't remember what it was, but I remember thinking, I remember right after the fight, he came up and he's like, you really controlled the pace of the fight. But he would do, like, I didn't really understand their scoring system there until like afterwards. For example, I remember at one point I'm on top of him and he like grabs and tries to give me like in a gooseneck wrist lock, which is nothing. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I think stuff like that was giving him points. I think he was attempted submissions or something because he did a couple things like that. And at the end, I was like, okay, I've been I've been on top and I've been doing a lot most of the fight, and I lost the majority decision. I think was a majority. I don't remember what it was, but uh, so I, it was very yeah, one you know, round ten minutes, majority one round ten minutes majority decision. Yeah. Okay, so Chris, this was. Like, all right, I, I, I've got everything, like, written down meticulously. Yeah. And every time you'd go to Pancras, they seem to throw different rule sets at you. <laughs> so, like, on your, your first time there, you've got gloves, no shin pads. On this one, you've got no gloves, open hand, with shin pads. Yeah. So, you know, and let's talk about Jason DeLuca, but, like, as a whole. We had Gary Meyer on in a past interview where he said, and if you look at Jason's record, let me let me just kind of come full circle here. 90%, he's a 50 fight club member with 90% of his fights taking place in Japan. 
Now he speaks fluent Japanese. Gary Myers in his interview to us said that all he was doing was scouting the Americans, kind of giving them bad information, and then relaying what he knew to the Japanese fighters. He was almost kind of like a spy, and that's what how Gary Myers described him. At this time, did you know that he was kind of in bed with the organization, particularly Yuki Kondo? Absolutely. I mean, I knew you, when you saw him there, like he was wearing – he wore all the Pancrase stuff, had that shin pad. Like, he, he was a member of the Pancrase team, you know? Like, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't part of – I was a fighter, but I was definitely on the outside. Like, he – like, they had their guys, like, the people who trained there in their in the in the what they called the P-Labs, you know, the Pancrase Labs, either Yokohama or Tokyo. He was one of those guys. I wasn't one of those. The Americans they brought in were not one of those guys. He was on their team, you know what I mean? So, he was 100% what he said. He spoke Japanese. He was – he, he might have lived there for all I know, but he was one of their guys. We were I'm not assuming he did. Guys. I'm assuming yeah. he lived there because of how many fights. I mean, he'd be going back and forth every three weeks if he didn't live there. He had to have lived there. At least and, for part of the time. Yeah. And when I was speaking about earlier where it seemed like at times they were trying to hold you back, this is what I was referring <laughs> to where there are fights where it seemed like if you could have if you could have had your gloves and been able to, to strike, you could have oh. really lifted your body up. But that particular fight, oh, no, we're going to do open hand this time. Were they just trying to figure it out as they went, like everybody else, or were they? No, no, they, they, at that point, like I said, their still main system was open-handed with those boots on. Uh, that was the main pancreas sound. If you want to be king of pancreas, that's what it had to be. And so that's why when it, they moved to those rules, I was like, all right, cool, I'm going to this will help get me up the ladder. It was different for me because I wasn't as used to that, but I was like, I'll make do, and, and I'm going to learn. It's a fight, it's a fight. Um, but I didn't really understand how they, and, and even looking back, it was a while before I understood how they, how they exactly scored things. You know, I, I, I didn't really quite get that. And I learned that in that fight, I thought I won and I didn't. So then you got, and, and part of it, I think, may, I mean, if you understand the little nuances, like you did of maybe, Oh, I'm going to try and get this wrist like they love submission. So if I do that and, and he's hitting me and I'm winning, I didn't know that. I thought if I was hitting him, I'm winning. So I didn't get it, and I thought I won. But, you know, it helped. He was ranked fourth. He was well-known. Maybe that'll help. I don't know. It's impossible to judge. It's, yeah. it's, it's literally impossible to judge those. And, Chris, they beat your record up. Like, they really, oh really gosh. did. Oh, my God. And yeah. three weeks later, you fight at Pancrase 74. No gloves, open hand strikes, but with shin pads. So soccer kicks to the head and kicks to the face with shoes and shin pads on Good. is completely allowed. So no closed fists to the face, but a kick to the head is Makes when sense. you, what fought, you think about Yeah, Takafumi Ito, which yeah. was also another draw. And that was one, I mean, I promised. I remember I fought there, and afterwards I said, I'm never coming back, you know, because I felt like I dominated the fight. I bet you the did. first, oh, did you watch it? Oh, I mean, I was, watched I was on mentally top. ill. I watched I was all. on top for probably what six of the ten minutes, and, and, and maybe, uh, maybe more, seven, maybe, maybe seven more. or eight. And yeah. I'm like, I keep hitting him, and I'm doing. He did. I remember. I, I got. They. I, I was always so excited because they send you a magazine in the mail, like later on. It was like their fight magazine. <laughs> it's on Japanese. No idea what it says, but it, they had the audacity that the pictures had like me on top once, him on top once, and him like doing this cartwheel thing. He tried to do like a cartwheel. And it was flashy, but it didn't do anything. Like, he did a cartwheel, didn't hit me or anything. And I'm like, 
the crowd liked it, but I'm like, does that do? Does that get you points for doing a cartwheel next? To me? I was like, I, I, I didn't get it. So I thought I dominated that fight, and I'm like, after show that, points I'm not coming back, huh? It show points with the with the cartwheel. Yeah. He, he landed Even, good. Yeah, and th- that's why I said I'm never coming back here. And then a couple months later, they go, "You come back? Yeah, I'll come back." I mean, I, <laughs> at that point, you got to understand when I fought here in America, people were like. You do what? You know, it was a weird novelty, and you were part of it. Like, you just did it because you like it. You thought you and your buddies were just kind of doing weird stuff. Like, yeah, I like fighting in cages. But there in Japan, it was it was a real sport. I'd show up, and they'd have, like, little baseball trading cards with me on it, and little kids would want to come up and take pictures. You get to autograph their cards and adults, too. So it was like, it was it, it was a different feeling than you got here, and, and I liked it. You know, I was like, I, I want to be, I, I want to be there. You know, like they also appear to have like an overtime round in this bout. Yeah. Okay. You got to remember, I, I try not to look at the results. I just hit play. I watch everything. Yeah. And as soon as they went to the overtime round, I, in my head, I go, "There's well, why is there overtime? Like th- th- this fight's over." And I, I knew you probably had issues at that point. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. As soon as if 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 I won, then it was over. If he won, it was over. They go, uh, to draw, keep going. So I'm like, all right, you know. <laughs> and I thought I won the overtime too. And then they go, nah, it's you a did. Draw. I was like, right, yeah. that's when I was like, I don't. That's when I realized I don't really know what they're looking for. I don't know how to judge this, and I I don't know. I figure I did everything to win that fight, and I didn't win. So well, let, let's I, let, let's really come full circle on it, Chris. Like you're. Technically speaking, on, on, on even their records, you're two one and one, and uh, Takafumi Ito is twenty nineteen and four. But if you look at like his past competition, it's insane. Dude. It's it's he's he's got a very high level of competition. So there was there was a a bit of experience difference between you two. I, I saw him fight. A guy, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy weighed 260 pounds. You know what I mean? And, and so there's overweight class, and he did very well against him. So I'm like, he was a bad boy, man. I mean, he was the only guy I remember being there who I was probably bigger than. You know, I, I was bigger than him, probably maybe about five pounds. But I mean, he he's fighting these monsters all his career. So he, the dude was legit. He was very good. He seemed concerned about his power, too. But, you know, it wasn't really power because it was you, you couldn't punch closed fisted. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, open-handed, you know. So I was just like, you know, it wasn't that. It was, uh, you know, I tr- here's another thing. When I stayed there for six weeks and trained, he was one of my main training partners. You know what I mean? So I'm fighting, going against guys I know very well, and I knew what he was good at, and I was just trying to defend what he did well. So um, shortly after that, well, I shouldn't say shortly. You 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 take a little bit of a break, and in November, your introduction to Miguel and Jeff Osborne is at Hook and Shoot against uh, Luke Pettigo. Okay. Do you remember that fight? I do. I do. So, so Luke comes out in his high school wrestling singlet. <laughs> How intimidated were you at that point? I wasn't intimidated at all, but look, I knew Luke was strong as hell, man. I remember I seen him before. This guy, he was a powerful individual. I remember thinking, man, he came out with that that wrestling thing. I was like, this is it's hilarious, man. I know what to say. You know what I mean? It's just like, what are you going to do? And I, I remember from wrestlers I knew, I remember I was going to try and kick this guy really hard right away. So I went through a big kick right away. And uh, I think he tried to get a takedown, pick me up, and I ended up choking him. Is that right? 
Yeah. 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 Miguel, was that your first time seeing Chris fight live? Yeah, I, I went through, uh, we were joking, we mentioned Phyllis Lee and we were joking off the air about this, but the bottom line is, is we were trying to upgrade, you know, the quality of the show here. We've got a guy from Indiana who's been fighting in Japan as, as we've been covering. I thought it would mean a lot to get a guy like that, that had technique that it would add to the card. So we got him, we got him signed mid-level. I went through Phyllis, you know, we put him in the middle of the card. <clears throat> um, Luke was one of our guys, so he'd seen him fight probably on our show. Um, well, Luke and Heath were both of your guys. His well, brother Luke, Heath had to go. He Heath was more of a Jeff. Uh, like after I'd left Hook and Shoot, like they, they worked together. I don't think I don't think I worked with Heath because he was a lot younger. But okay. Luke was Luke was a tough, uh, you know, blue collar guy from India uh, from Illinois that that liked to fight, but. You know, I thought there would be a difference in level. And the thing is, the, the funny story here is, is this is 99 and Chris was born. So Chris is about 23, 23 years old at this point. And his manager, Phyllis Leeds, told me, I got this 18-year-old. <laughs> He's been fighting in Japan. And, you know, Chris, Chris proceeded to go the Vitor, at least via Phyllis, the Vitor Belfort route. Where he was eighteen for like three years there. <laughs> well, <laughs> with fifteen fights. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's been fighting for five years. He's eighteen. <laughs> so, a little side note, a little caveat to that story. Uh, you know, for those hardcore jujitsu people, one of the the top up and coming schools in the entire country is in Mount Vernon, Illinois. This real small suburb, um, and it's called Daisy Fresh, and it's one of his head instructors is Heath Pedigo, which is Luke's brother. Yeah, they've, they've done some incredible things on the jiu-jitsu circuit. Mm -hmm. So two weeks later, you fight November 21st, 1999. You fight in an eight-man tournament, which, Whew. Chris, we're going to go on a little deep dive with this with Monty Cox. We, yeah. Miguel and I kind of dabbled a little bit talking about historic events. This is up next, and... There's six UFC veterans in this 185-pound tournament, and I think it was actually 180 pounds, and your first draw is future world champion Dave Benet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I remember, I remember Phil set me up with this. I was like, who? You know, it's like Matt Hughes, and I'm like, ah, I pissed on that guy, whatever. And so I was like, all right, I'll go up there. And I didn't, I was like, man, it was up like 13 hours away from where I live. I'm like, they weren't paying for travel. They weren't doing any of this stuff, no flights. So I'm like, well, man, how am I going to get up there? She's like, I got a, I got a guy for you here. His name's Dave Strasser. You go up and spend night at his house and you guys will drive up together. So I'm like, I've never met Dave Strasser before. So <laughs> I drive up to his house. I'm like, hey, Chris, I was like, man, come on in, you know. Spend the night at his house in the morning. We leave. You know, we, we leave together and we drive up to top of with, um, was it, I can't remember if it was Minnesota or Wisconsin. I can't remember where it's at. I think it was in Minnesota, wasn't it? Yeah, Hayward. Yeah, yeah Hayward, yeah, so, Wisconsin, actually. Oh, Hayward, Hayward Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah. yeah. But it's way up there. It was like eight hours away from where he lives, which is in Kenosha. So it was, it was, it was forever up there. It was in, uh, I remember we went up there and um, I show up. I walk in to like weigh myself and like uh like Matt Hughes and Dave Manet are just walking out of the weighing room. Like there's nobody else in there besides Monty. I'm like, hmm, they look pretty big. <laughs> so I get on the scale, it's probably 175. All right. And then uh 
I was like, did those guys make weight? He goes, yep. All right. And I left. So, I mean, I was, I was still pretty new and green. I, I trusted what people said. Like, I didn't know they were, I didn't know they were part of team money. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know who was signed by who. I was like, all right, whatever. I feel like he was big though. You know, they listed you as 10, one and two with international experience. Um, hey, man, that tournament was fantastic. It's a legendary oh, tournament. Yeah. Brutal, Laverne man. Clark was I mean, in it. Matt yep. Hughes was in it. Um, yourself, obviously. It's It's got six UFC vet, vet, veterans, a future UFC veterans that it's just, it's a sick tournament, man, for sure. And I remember that. I remember the fight in Monet. Um, I mean, he just felt so big and strong. When I remember when I get on bottom, I just had trouble getting him off me. And um, I remember when I was on my feet, I cracked him good a couple of times. So I wanted to be on my feet, and I could tell he did not. And I remember I lose a decision there. I, was, I mean, we I thought we really – we hurt each other. You know, we both hurt each other pretty good. And I remember after the fight, I'm pissed. And, you know, it's my first time really losing in, a, in the United States. And Imani Cox comes up to me. He's like, hey, man uh, – I don't think Dave's going to fight next round. He said he's probably out. So will you be willing to fight Laverne and Clark? I mean, Hell yeah, I'll do it. And um, he's like, all right, I'll get back with you. And he came back later. He's like, he's going to do it. I'm like, all right. So I don't know what happened, but Dave, you could tell. Mm -hmm. I remember watching when Dave went out that next round. He Laverne's first fight was like 15 seconds long. And so Dave comes out there and he's not moving well at all. You know, he it, it, it was a tough fight for him, and he ended up winning that one too. But then he quit and didn't go in the finals. He couldn't. No, it's he won the fight but lost the war because he he looked like a pumpkin head after Laverne Clark. Laverne Clark just threw dynamite every single time. And he, he didn't he didn't tell Laverne Clark doesn't telegraph his punches. Like he throws fire and they're real hard to see coming. They're real hard to see too. coming. Yeah. He's got big hands, too, big fists. He's, he's a mean guy. So I think at that point, he was like four and one in the UFC or three and one in the UFC. He was a legit fighter. Vern, yeah. Our, our, yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and what takes place is Dave Manet beats Laverne Clark. Dave pulls out Laverne Clark, goes on to fight Matt Hughes in the finals. Matt Hughes wins, wins the tournament. But he, Laverne beat him the first round. He took Matt down and had him down the whole first round. I, everybody was shocked. Everybody was like, he, Matt was on the bottom the whole first round. Yeah. It was weird. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that was two weeks after your fight for hook and shoot. Three weeks after the, your Extreme Challenge 29, which, I mean, dude, you went to a decision with Dave Manet, future world champion. You were at bottom most of the time. Very difficult fight. You go back to Japan uh, to fight at Pancras 80. Iku, Ikuhisa Minowa? Miguel? Minowa. Minowa's a bad boy. He was that a lot of high level Chris, never mind your fight. Miguel, did I pass? Did I pass? Yeah, you're, you're okay on this one. Minimal. Okay, all right, Chris, go ahead. We we got more tests coming. Yeah, oh, everyone. <laughs> now, Minowa fought everybody there, man. He was. Yeah. He, I felt bad for him in a way. He was one of the guys who was really good for for Pancrase, and they just ended up throwing the rules. I think he fought. Did he fight Rampage Jackson twice? I think he might have beat him once. I can't remember. He beat some he good fought, guys. He fought Semi Schultz. I saw that, man. It, it, it's so funny. He does it like a somersault in and like takes him down. Run. It, it was so weird. Then he shows him like six eleven. He was, he was like five eight. 
maybe five, six. Six no, eleven and every bit of 270 pounds of purebred Dutch kickboxer. Yeah, but Manoa, Manoa, they love that shit because, like, they, they stuck him in with Hongman Choi, too. They stuck yeah. him in yeah. and, and Bob Sapp. So Giants. That, like, Semi Shield was, like, the third biggest guy he fought. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> it's so insane. I, I remember Manoa was another, one of those guys who, who was at the – Yokohama gym, I trained with him a bunch. So I knew what he was going to do. Like, it's so weird. Everybody I fought, I, I felt like I trained with them at some point. So but I knew what he was going to bring to the table. And that was another one. It was 150-minute round with um, headbutts and all that stuff. And if you watch that fight, we headbutt the shit out of each other, man. Um, yeah, you got cracked but I, hard. But I thought, I thought I beat the brakes off him the entire fight, really. I mean, he, he almost – he had a couple good headbutts in there. And he tried for some ankle locks, but besides that, I thought I, I dominated the fight. And um he uh it was a draw once again. It was, the a draw. was a draw. But I mean I thought at the end it was funny if you watch watch the whole thing. Like I need him in the head right at the end of the fight. And uh at the end he kinda he's walking back to the locker room and have like guys kind of carry him and then I'm walking by myself, no friends. <laughs> I'm just kinda walking by myself. So no, that was the fun one. I remember that card. It was it was awesome because um, uh, uh, Nate Marquette was on the card. He was he was I was actually bigger than him um, back then. He was probably 170 pounds. I was probably 175. And then uh, and I think that I think Landon Andrew, Andrews might have been. I, I can't remember. That. I think there's a lot of Americans on that card. We all kind of just cornered each other. You know, it was just you were fighting, but when somebody else was up, you'd go out there with them because it's like us against the world mentality we stuck together and um yeah it was uh it, it was a fun card man i remember afterwards i always loved going out afterwards man because after you would fight we'd say okay fights are over we're going to rapongi and if you don't know what rapongi is that's that's the bar district you know that's that's where all the foreigners would go hang out and just get wild till about six in the morning you know they the, the subways had quit going at, at midnight and you were out until the subways came out you always come outside you see the sunlight you're like i gotta get back home you know <laughs> i gotta get i get the airport my flight leave, i have to leave for my flight at 7 15 you know what i mean so you get back it'd be seven o'clock you you uh you take a shower you grab your bags and you you'd head to the airport man it was awesome so you know just for people keeping score at home um this match was with gloves no shin pads so headbutts you know were allowed and punches you know closed fist punches to the face and minowa had over 100 fights at the time he was 11 11 and 5 but if you look at his losses like miguel said like it was just it's a murderer's row like it's I, I, They're really the mileage on that car is, is he had to flip his odometer a few times. <laughs> oh, there, there were there, it was a, it was a solid card as Chris mentioned. The, uh, Lane Andrews fought uh, Kunioku, um, yep. and uh, you know I think he's a, uh, Lane Andrews was your, your team partner. Genki Sudo fought Nate Marquardt. Yes, that's a, yeah, and, and Nate beat him most of the fight and got submitted with about a minute left. But I mean, I was impressed with both those guys because I'd seen Genki fight before. He's, he's legit. And Genki I mean, was they, a lot smaller than Nate as well. No, nah, not not that time. They were pretty similar. Really? Genki right. was I think maybe maybe Nate would have had five pounds. Get, Nate, I was bigger than Nate back. Nate was maybe one sixty eight. Genki was probably one sixty two three. Genki later, yeah, he made one fifty five quite easily. Yeah, but UFC. I mean, he, but yeah. there there was no weight class, so why would he cut at this point? There no way he was cutting. 
That's true. That's true. And, and and you're in Yokohama. The main event was Suzuki, the legend, losing to Sane Kikuda. Kikuda's the only Japanese guy who ever won a title in Abu Dhabi, so he was like a legend over there. Kikuda was fight? a bad. Kikuda was a bad. I remember when he first came, he was a big like acquisition for him. He he formed and he was he he was the one who brought in a Genki Sudo. They were kind of training partners with that. I can't remember was that Garaga. I can't remember the name of their team, but it was uh, a. But um, yeah, they were they were a little different offshoot. But man, he was he was on a different level on the ground as a lot of those guys. And to be honest with you, Suzuki at this point had been overcoming a lot of injuries, just wear and tear on his body. You can tell he'd been doing this for a long time. So the whole time that I was there, like Suzuki was past his prime and he was hurt, but he's still trying to fight. So that bout ended in a draw. And Chris, I, when the opening exchange, you hit Minoa with a knee to the head. I'm not sure he ever recovered from that because it was, it was a one-sided ass kicking. It really yeah. was. Yeah. So yeah it's he like, shot in, I hit him with the knee and he was, he went down and I jump on top and it was, it was, yeah, I thought it'd be him the whole time. It, it seemed to me just depending on your opponent and what would favor them was whether they use shin pads with or without gloves. It was always <laughs> kind of revolving. It really wasn't based on experience because you'd be, you know, here one day and there the next. It, it just kind of seemed like the deck was kind of stacked against you. And so well, let me tell you, here's what it was with them. They liked me, but I was not one of their guys. You know what I mean? There's a big difference that people don't understand. If you find UFC, that's one thing. But when you were there, and you, what I mean by one of your guys, you live in their gym. You train with them. You have their uniform. Like I said, that Jason DeLucia was one of their guys. You know, Minowa was definitely one of their guys. I, I only fought their guys. I never went there and fought another American. Very, You know what I mean? I, I Not yet. Them. Yeah, but I'm just saying at this point, I'm fighting their guys. Yeah, and one of the things that, that – you could say there that's a very just a very different model. Those guys probably fought for free because they were on salary from Pancreas, you know. So they had their monthly salary, their stuff taken care of. Yep. Hey, so you got to fight. It's like hey, that's what the job calls for. Yep. And they, they really seem to be fighting at a pro wrestling schedule, but really fighting, which is like you say, these guys like they have so many fights and they have this high mileage. It's yep. like you know every Saturday it's fight night. Even if you're concussed three weeks in a row, you know, it's still time to go work. You know, you know, the, the Pancrase, they were so tightly connected to, to pro wrestling in a way. That was like pro wrestling background in a way. So they kind of combined the two. So they had they have a very similar pro wrestling mentality in a way. Like all the pro wrestlers go against each other. All these fighters went against each other. So, I mean, yeah, you're hurt. You just deal with it. And, you know, that's what it is. It, it certainly took the leverage of saying no away from the fighter when you're living eating and drinking all of their food and, and you know staying in their house i don't even know if they asked you who you're fighting they kind of just told you this is who you're fighting yeah. <laughs> so what about, what about the gloves no gloves when would you find out what rule set you were fighting under uh i don't remember i just remember i mean it was it was before i got there i knew but i was just okay. like all right but as soon as That's they fair. tell me as soon as they say you have a fight well, uh, what is it? Is it NHB or is it, you know, uh, is it Pancrase? You're like, all right, cool. Let me know. So a little over a month after that, January 23rd, 2000, you fight on Pancrase 81. And they always have these little weird, like, trans one. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. 
Kiichiro, wait a minute, Miguel, stop. Kiichiro Yamamiya. Did I get that, Miguel? Yamamiya, yeah. Okay, my man. Jonah, you take me watching this, dude. So um, you you fight him, and um, this is with gloves and shin pads. Yeah. I mean, they were, like I said, they were. Are you drawing a blank on this fight? Yeah. No, I remember they were trying to transition um, exactly into what they were trying to more (laughs) MMA based because they knew that's where the crowd was heading. So that's um, why you have the shin pads and the gloves. So Yamamiya had wins over Yuki Kano, Chel Sohn, and then Nate Marquardt. And um, yeah, pretty pretty good. He's 17, 13, and 5. So we're talking about the beat-up records, but he's got wins over those three studs, obviously. You know, Yuki Kano, world champion, Nate Marquardt, and Chel Sonnen had very competitive fights in world title fights. And this guy who's almost got a 500 record has got wins over... All yeah. three of them. Uh, uh, also on this card was Shoney Carter, who you probably, I think Mike's getting to the fight where you fight him yeah. for Pancrase. Did you get to watch Shoney and Pancrase and see how that? Oh, yeah. And did you oh, know yeah. that you'd be matched up with him on one of their other cards or how that worked I out? I thought probably, but I didn't really know. But I remember that fight against uh, Yamamiya. I remember this is, this is where I learned a lot, not in that fight, but I remember one of my probably – third time being in Japan. I was I was still a young guy and I'm trying to impress these guys, you know. I wanted them to like me and think, oh, this guy's really good. So I go to the gym. I remember um they're like, uh, you wanna just work out a little bit. I didn't have any cornermen or anything because Phil's took my pass. Uh so I had no cornermen. So I, I was there. Uh I didn't know that until later either. So no cornerman it's like, but they're bringing me. No, you're taking my pass. So okay. Mm-hmm. So I had no cornerman. So I go to the the P lab in Tokyo, like, um, I'll work out with this guy. So, hey, mind if I roll with you? He's like, okay. But he didn't speak in English. We just nod. So, I'm like, all right. So, I start walking out with this guy, and I'm still trying to impress all the guys in Japan. So, they think I'm badass. And they want me to come back because you, you didn't know back then that they were going to bring you back. So, you know, I'm going with Yama and me, and I'm putting him in, you know, all these different submissions holes, and I'm like, submitting him, and he's tapping on me. Oh, I feel good about myself. And I go to this guilty, and I'm going for this other. I go for all my moves. I'm putting all my good moves on him. And I feel good about myself. I leave. I'm like, man, that guy was a neo-blood champ, and he beat some good guys. I'm, I'm pretty good. So when we fight, it didn't go like that anymore. This mm-hmm. guy knew what I was going to do. He, the whole time we were grappling, he wasn't trying to win. He was trying to learn what I would do because he knew we were going to fight at some point. I didn't know we were going to fight at some point, but he outsmarted me there. He, he And that's when I learned it later. I was like, you know what? That guy didn't even try against me. He tried to learn what I would do, and he learned it. So when I fought him, I can't remember if that was a majority decision or not, but uh, it was, it was I, just decision. Yeah. I just couldn't get my offense going because everything I tried to do, he had, he had an answer for it. He knew I was going to do it. So it was a tough fight. So the caveat is to this fight is – one of the things that if you don't learn it here, you're going to learn it soon after because it's kind of a reoccurring theme is in Pancrase, the rule set, Chris was saying it's kind of a confusing rule set in regards to how you score points and how you get your hand raised at the end. But also like in like, let's just say like soccer, basketball, and somebody is kind of like faking like they got hurt, like they're flapping is, is the term that is used. 
when you flap in those sports, 90% of the time, the referee is going to kind of see through it and just go, ah, keep playing. If you even come close to striking somebody with a low blow on pancreas, it's an automatic point deduction. So anything that is like within a very close circumference of that groin area that's a strike, immediately they go, oh, even if it doesn't hurt, they raise their hand and they go, got me. I'm going to need about 15, 20 seconds if it's not that big of a deal just for them to take that point away from you, yeah. which is certainly something that took place against Yamamiya where you're just like, that was no big deal. What, 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 what? It's no big yeah. deal. Yeah. 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 So like I said, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from that fight. Um, things like you're talking about, right? They're like, okay, this is, I was more, not, not audible is the right word, but I was like, this, I, I want to fight. You know, I'm here to fight to, to these guys. It was a, it was an athletic contest about who could win and that, by all means necessary. Their life, their livelihoods on, on the line. You know what I mean? They, they want, I mean, I wanted to win really bad too, but I was just there to fight. And, and I think they had a lot of little tricks. You know, they were thinking these things too. It wasn't just like go out there and fight. Like I said, if, oh, he, he hit me in the stomach. I'm like, oh, my groin shot, you know what I mean? Or, or, or whatever. They were going to try and figure out a win at all costs. So you were also cornered by Tito Ortiz and Shoney Carter. Why was Tito there? I didn't see anybody from Team Punishment on a card. Okay, so Chuck Liddell was supposed to be there. He was supposed to, no, he was there. He's supposed to fight. I can't remember who he was supposed to fight, but he, he, he said like, he hurt his ankle before he came and he's like, I wasn't going to come. And they said, come out anyway. We'll see if you can get a fight. He couldn't, he couldn't get a, do it. So he, he just was there. But I remember that. Cause I remember it was so awesome for me. You know, I talked about going there and rolling around. I got to roll with Tito Ortiz before that. Um, just training. I remember thinking he was a, he was a huge deal at the time. And uh, just, I really learned like he, he learned he knew a lot more than I thought. I thought he was just some ground and pound guy. And I rolled him like this dude has submission after submission. He was good, you know. I didn't realize I thought he was just a ground and pound guy. He was a wrestler who could elbow, but no, I learned he looked he, he knew a lot and it was a lot of fun. I remember afterwards, this is so weird. Afterwards, like I lost that decision, I was mad, but we went out to uh went out to Rapongi. Remember it was Tito's 25th birthday. We got 25th birthday. And I was like, so we're getting we're drinking and we're partying. I remember. I was like, Chuck, you know, hey, man, let's buy you a drink. And Chuck's like, nah, I don't drink. And we're thinking, all right, whatever, dude, don't drink. And not till years later, I'm like, dude, you're, you're hammered, doing coke all over hookers. And, I mean, what, what happened? To, <laughs> I thought you didn't drink. What was, maybe you want to drink with me. I don't know. Maybe maybe he changed. I don't know. But it was like, it, that was my thought of him. I think I, that guy don't drink, you know, whatever. But uh, he, he went and hung out with us all night, and we had a blast. So uh, three weeks after that, you fight and hook and shoot again, March 17, 2000. I'm not sure where this event is at. I, I couldn't find a place. It's definitely not Evansville. Against Hell City. The where was it at? Aaron Riley's hometown. Hell City, Hell City Indiana. Hell City, the, Indiana. At, at, at the, uh, like, Legion Hall. Yes, it's a real small venue. Against a very tough opponent in C.J. Fernandez. Yeah, man. I mean, I remember... I I remember before that fight, you know, I got the a tape and I watched him. I remember the dude has these Muay Thai shorts. I'm thinking, it's a Muay Thai fighter. Okay, cool, you know. And uh, just watching, I knew he was strong though because he picked the dude up and slammed him. I was thinking, okay, this Muay Thai guy. So I went out there for the fight. Tell City, Indiana, never been there before. And um, I'm thinking, I'm gonna I'm gonna box with this guy. And um, the first thing he did was like reach. He got these real long arms, so he reached in and grabbed my legs. 
pick me up over his head and dump me right on my shoulder and, and, and my head. Like, boom. And I was like, what just happened? And I knew my shoulder hurt, but I didn't really know. That's all I knew. And then all of a sudden, this dude comes out and starts trying to hit me. So I'm blocking. I'm trying to defend myself. And I was like, okay. It took me a minute to, to get my bearings. Remember, I got back to my feet and I hit him with a good right hand and it didn't really hurt him. I'm thinking, that's weird because it kind of knocked him, but I thought it should have knocked him out. And we tie up and he, he like, he body locked me and I fell on top of him and he like wizard me over. And I remember thinking, that's never happened before. I remember, is this guy just really strong? He's, he's a lot bigger on? than you. I was like, but I remember thinking, what the hell? Why is he able to do? Yeah, I don't care if you're bigger than me. You can't wizard me over. I mean, I don't care who you so I, was, I couldn't figure it out. And then, like the fight, I don't remember how long the it it, it wasn't rounds though. Still, we're still in like the 11, 12 minute round. I can't remember what it was, but I remember about ten minutes in, I ended up catching him with a triangle choke and submitting him. You know, and I remember trying to stand up afterwards and raise my hands up, and only my left hand would go up. My right wouldn't go all the way up. It was like, ah, and then. I go, I get out of the ring. I remember the late, great Tony Ross was like, all right, you, uh, good job, man. You ready to go? I go, where is it? Go to the hospital. I'm like, why? He goes, look at your arm. Look at my shoulder. Look down my, my shoulders. That bone sticks out. My bone is sticking out real far, like grotesquely. And people are like, oh, I remember thinking, man, I'm just going to go to the paramedics, have them pop it back in. And they were just like, dude, it's not dislocated. It's separated, you know? And I was like, what, what does that mean? That means it means you got to go to the hospital. So it was Tell City, Indiana, about three hours away from India. I'm like, I'm not going to the hospital here. So I remember Tony gets me in the car. He's like, okay, here's a, he gives me two pills and says, take these. And I did. And he stopped by the liquor store, bought me a six pack of beer. He goes, here. About halfway back to India, I was like, I don't think, I don't think I need to go to the hospital. I think it's going to be fine. They're like, dude, that's going to wear off. We're going to the hospital, man. So I went to the hospital. They're like, yeah, you, you separated, man. I was out for, probably about four months it was bad that dude was strong as could be really tough oh i remember where i, I saw him fight keith Wisniewski for 29 minutes or 31 minutes i can't remember uh up in fort wayne straight i mean those dudes battled he beat keith Wisniewski in like 30 minutes it was a terrible fight the, i knew he was tough now chris you i mean in your high school wrestling career you were the indiana state runner-up for wrestling at your weight class Correct. yeah so the one thing that, that kind of the questions that I have is you don't mind playing the nail in early situations in your fight. It, it, oftentimes you don't really fight a takedown that hard for the type of wrestling pedigree that you have. And for him to come out with that big slam and you being on bottom, is that just a way to kind of let your opponent throw you around or how do they get no. that position? Well, what happened with that one was like, I honestly thought he was going to try and stand up more. You know, I, I didn't really anticipate two things. Him trying to take me down and how long his arms were just to really not even shoot in and be able to just reach out and pick me up like that. I was like, people, I have a pretty good takedown defense. People usually can't do that, you know? So <laughs> when you're standing up and I was ready for punches and strikes and kicks, and so when I'm up here like this and he grabbed the legs like there, usually I can get back. But he was incredibly strong with his really long arms. And he just scooped me up real quick. Um, he, like I said, he impressed me with his, his strength, you know, and his ability to pick me up off my feet. But, like, if, you, if we wrestle, I think I could do a very good job of stopping takedowns. But when you start adding kicks and punches in there, 
And unfortunately, my my mentality is always offensive when it comes to kicking and punching. I want to hit you hard, and that, that takes away from my takedown defense. Um, those guys who are good at stopping takedowns and everything, I think that they don't tend to have as good of, uh, of power or striking ability. Like, they're more defensive and – you know, I was saying, man, that they can't hit hard. Well, they could maybe if they put into it, but they're usually focused on wrestling defense. I wasn't. I was worried about my striking offense, not my wrestling defense. And so that's what happened there. Okay. So little little side note, 50 Fight Club member Adrian Serrano was the referee that day. <laughs> was he? Yeah. Okay. I think he, I was, a, yeah. he was helping out the main event also was, was this is this was a setup for Chris Lytle versus Aaron Riley. That Which we we'll later get to. do because uh, Riley Riley foot almost got knocked out by Jeremy Bennett and came back to win a heroic fight where he knocked Bennett out in the nice. main event and Chris Chris had his fight which you know also had a, a heroic kind of come from behind feel to it so this was a natural setup you know lucky we had three hundred people there to really build the fight up you know but uh, <laughs> hey and this was one of the things that made me know that. You know, Miguel was my guy because every other person I fought for, if you get hurt, they're like, yeah, it sucks, you know? And I remember Miguel was like, hey, man, you go to the hospital, we got you. And he paid for the bill for me. So I never forgot that. I was like, dude, I can't believe it. I mean, that was shocked me that he would do it, you know what I mean? Because uh, nobody else would do that for me back then, man. They'd be like, hey, you're on your own, brother. And, and I, <laughs> and so Miguel's like, we got you, Chris. I was like, man, I, I've always said, said like, Yep, these are my guys. I'm always, whatever they need, I'm, I'm in. You know, so taking care I, of me in the right way is awesome. I appreciate that. It was a, it was the kind of thing where it's like, there's Chris. Chris is actually leaning over like like this, and and like you could actually tap the bone on his shoulder. And I'm looking at it like Jason Godsey, Tony Ross, and I'm like, you know, I I, I don't think I have much of a choice. <laughs> <laughs> and that is kind of what makes. Miguel, Miguel is he's really known for taking care of guys because he didn't see a choice. A lot of promoters would have been like, I don't see anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's what that was. Uh, well, it was like that when you got in the ring. I saw. <laughs> it's a yeah. pre-existing I injury. I all the way here like that. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's funny. So, uh, you obviously, you take a, you know, from March 17th to June 26th, you have a little bit of heel time in regards to letting your body recuperate. I cannot believe I only took three months off from that, man. That's nuts because that was – I couldn't move it for the first month. I was in a sling trying to – yeah. I had a wedding the next day, too. I remember with all my family there, my mom hey, did not want me to fight at all. So I remember trying to pretend like I wasn't hurt at the wedding. You know, I remember, like, I'm trying to, like, move my arm, and I couldn't move it. You know, I was trying to, like – I was eating. I was putting my head down to the thing, table to eat, take bites. They probably, like – the hell's wrong with this guy, man? He's been hit too many times. No, I just couldn't move my arm. But people thought he's, I was messed up. He's eating like a pig. No, it's for uh, the kids. <laughs> you know, it's for the kids, man. <laughs> it was bad. I had a big old cut on my eye. It was bad. <laughs> so you take a few months off, obviously, to heal up. In June 26, 2000, Pancrase 84, where you're fighting in gloves and shin pads against Daisuke Ishii, Miguel Miguel, if this was a math test, I'm acing this so far, brother. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. Ishii, yeah. So I, that was the one where they said, okay, we're coming up with weight classes. I said, cool, this is for me, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do well in this tournament. And uh, my manager, I show up there, 
And I found out she put me in the wrong weight class. She put me like the one, it was a weight class above me in kilos. It would have probably been 187 pounds. And I remember we were like, Jason was furious. He's like, Phyllis, what are you doing? Chris doesn't weigh that. He's, he's a 170 pounder. She goes, he told me he weighed 191. I go, that was two years ago. I was like, I just said that beginning. I was like, you don't know what I, I mean, oh, this is the funniest, man. So I go to weigh in. And and they're talking and they go, you you don't weigh enough. Well, what do you mean? They go. Did you say, who me? <laughs> I said, what, what do you mean? Oh, you're allowed to weigh under. You just can't weigh over. I'm trying to explain the rules to them. Like uh, they're speaking in Japanese. Uh, uh, no, you must weigh over. Like my other one was like 77 kilos, the one I should have been in. And I was I wasn't quite there. I was even under on that weight class, and they're like, you got to weigh more than that. I go. Okay, uh, what do I do? They go, go upstairs and start eating. So I go upstairs and I'm drinking all this stuff and I'm eating the Chunko and that's just drinks. I come back down, I'm still like two pounds under. I'm like, Jesus, oh, I'm going to do this. So I remember Phyllis gives me like a big bag that she has full of like yen and all these like change. And I go and I put my, I put my shorts on, I put my cup on and I put the change in the cup. So, so it comes that. Back, to yeah. weigh in, I'm walking, it's like, ching, ching. You can, like, hear the chains rattle as I walk up the scale. I get on the scale, and I, like, barely make weight. And then they, they, they're talking. They make a rule after that. You can't wear your shorts and stuff. You have to just wear <laughs> So I made them make another rule, but I, I, I made weight well, to, Chris, make, to, to get up enough to make weight to get in. The first Imagine weighing in with your jock strap and having the change behind your jock strap. I mean, you would have done it anyway. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whatever it takes. But I remember that fight, too, because I'd seen uh, Ishii fight a couple of times. And he was I, – I, I was like, okay, this guy's a, a left-handed guy. And so I worked on all these kicks. I was going to do these kicks of the front leg, kicks – I worked on it. And then little did I know, as I came out there, he'd been training with the boxing guys. So – he comes Dude. out. And he's right. He's right-handed, and I was like, it threw me off. Like that. That was the last time I ever came up with a game plan like that because it threw me off. All I had were these different plans, and he he changed from a southpaw to an orthodox boxer. Like it threw me off. His he he was throwing fire, bro. He was throwing hard. And he's a, and he's probably 195 pounds at the time because he probably gained a few pounds after the weigh-in. But I mean. And I, he seemed to control the the majority of yeah. the fight, but then he started to kind of pull away. You know, the beginning of the fight, you were losing, and you were real concerned about being on the receiving, excuse me, end of his punches. And then once you started to turn it around, you glanced a, another groin shot, and you got a yellow card. And that's what yeah. took the fight from you. Like, you yeah. could, I think you could have won that fight. Was it? Was it a majority, or was it? unanimous it was the majority because it was due to the fact that uh you got the yeah, yellow card so that's what i thought because if it won the yellow card i think i would win the fight because a majority decision i mean one of the judges called it a draw yeah and the other two gave it to him so if it hadn't been for that thing i think i would have probably won um well, but yeah th that 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 was when i was like i was very frustrated and uh because like i said i just I, I couldn't quite catch a break there so miguel there's obviously you're more well versed in regards to the difference in cultures than, than we are. The, the Pancrase judges were like, if you look at them, 
all three are sitting next to each other and they're like in the front row with like a light on top of them in the stands. It's almost as if they were conferencing, okay, well, somebody's got to give them a draw, we was going to fight, and then we do this. <laughs> there, there was not separate judging at these events. Miguel, would you agree with that? Look, I, I, I think that their system, you got to take into account that, you know, it's a Japanese company and that they want to see Japanese fighters do well and their system. So the Japanese fighters are fighting under the same circumstances. Their judges are also sitting at the same table and stuff and opponents and things. So it, it all looks very strange. It definitely it isn't what we're accustomed to. And uh, I, I think they're probably less works in Pancrase than they get a reputation for, especially, you know, around this time that we're talking about. I don't think that that happened at all. I don't, I don't think there was think... any at this point. Well, is it a work when the judges decide what takes place? It, 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 Once if, again, uh, if the promotion in some way is responsible for the decision, then it would be a work. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and, and I don't think that's, I think that what you get is you get two very clearly philosophical different people, uh, you know, and that, and we're judging. You know? Yeah. I, I yeah. think, I think a lot of it was what, you know, you get guys like Jason Lucian, you got all the pen craze guys. They understood. They were probably told what the judges are looking for, you know, and the little things that they would do to help get them points, quote unquote, or whatever, like these little nothing submissions they might try. I think submissions were heavily weighted in there. If you tried in a submission, even if it didn't get, I think you got more points than if you hit somebody. So it was just a, a, a fundamental philosophical difference between the Eastern culture and the Western. We were definitely more, you know, whoever's doing the most damage, they're whoever's closest to submitting, I think. So I think they under, they just, they just do things different. And it was hard for us to adjust because nobody would explain it. They weren't going to try and explain that to me. Why would they explain that to me? They didn't want me to win. You know what I mean? So if you could have went there and beat them at their own game, I think they'd have been like, okay, so I don't necessarily blame the judges. I blame the fact that nobody would try and tell you how to win. So at this point, Chris, your record online is four wins, four losses, three draws. <laughs> think about how nuts that not is. Not, not good. Yeah. Yeah. And, not, and not happy with that, but I mean, you know, like I said, in my eye, and, and that's not to say, I'm not just 10-0 back in the States. I'm still having fights there, and they're not on my record. I remember I had a like a an eight-man tournament at the Adamark Hotel um, in Indianapolis, and I fought, you know, I beat all three of those guys within less than five minutes total. I was very happy. I won like thousand bucks just for like a nothing fight, you know. So these fights, you know, just are not on my record either. And there's more than just, there's just a lot of little fights that I'm going to that aren't on my record from that. So I probably had another, at least 15 or so fights that aren't on my record that they're not, they're not indicated. So I'm still fighting outside of Japan too. I'm still going and getting wins and anything well, Chris, local. You're, you're, you're fighting at a three week pace though. Yeah. A lot of times, a lot of times, but I mean, like, like in, I said, in Japan, but I remember, I remember one month. I think I had five fights <clears throat> with that eight. What are these Pancras fights paying? Roughly uh, twelve to fifteen hundred dollars. Let, let me ask you: Was it was it the kind of thing where, like, when you fought three weeks apart in Japan, did you take one trip and stay over there for the three weeks, or did you go back and forth? 
but uh just i did that once where i stayed for like the six weeks i had a couple of fights in but i mean my, mainly i'd fly back home okay a lot of travel yeah i mean because you have to be did there for five days before it did you ever tell him if uh let me stay here just pay me for the flight just give me what you're spending at american airlines yeah man um it was like but then it was weird because they would have to invite you to live in the gym and i didn't i wasn't really interested in going down that road again because when i did that like i said it was it was weird man you were by yourself you didn't have anybody to talk to um there was no cell phones and having i couldn't call home i couldn't do anything man it was just it was just sit there and train. So I was like, screw it. I'd rather come back for two weeks and train and talk to my people. and speak English Even the watch time TV. frame? The time frame huh? wouldn't screw you up because it's like you go there and take two days to adjust to their time frame. Then you come back, it takes two days to adjust back. And now you're you're screwing that oh, yeah. like internal clock up. It, it messed you up, man. It was, tough, it was tough getting used to for a long time. But like I said, I remember, I definitely remember one point I had that, that, Eight man tournament in at the Adams Mark Hotel in Indianapolis, and uh, that was that was like my fifth fight in a month. So you you mix in those three week times. I like one of those two weeks. I knew those were going to be easy tournaments, so I took it in there. And every now and again, I just throw another fight in. I felt felt like just to keep, you know, man, just just to keep fighting. I just wanted to fight every time. I didn't really understand peaking and stuff at that point. No, until that really wasn't until I started doing my boxing career that I I start having some issues with that. And I at this point, I haven't even started boxing until 2002. All right, so Chris, there's a difference between training for a fight and training to get better. Yep. At, at I, this I, point. I, I didn't know that at that point. I was just, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't peaking or anything. I would just train all the time. And there was okay. no trying to, I didn't understand this. And nobody, nobody explained that to me. This is something I had to develop over the, um, the school of hard knocks and, and getting some losses because you were stupid. You know what I mean? So, but there was nobody, I wasn't in a boxing gym yet. And it was just basically me and Jason and these guys trying to develop a system and figure out all this on our own. Like nobody was telling us any of this stuff. We were just guys from Indiana who would go and, beat the piss out of each other every day and that was it and, and you got tougher or you got or you got out and, and we learned like hey this doesn't work well maybe you should do this and we, okay that's a good idea hey maybe you shouldn't be keep trying i mean jason was a smart guy but he i mean like i said he, he, he his advice for me against a guy who beat olog was well Olog was doing cocaine so you're gonna be fine <laughs> all right were the fights almost like a part of your training at this point because it yeah, I mean, looking back, that's when I got all my real knowledge because, you know, you can – you learn when you're fighting um, and you learn when you're training, but you have to be training the right way. And, like, I wasn't I wasn't peeking for the fight. I wasn't you know, setting up a camp for this fight. You know, I, I would train – I remember being, like, three days before a fight and still going hard as hell. I mean, just going out there and training hard. You know, it's like, I got I to gotta be ready for this fight. I got to train hard. Like, you should have been resting, Chris. You know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't know. It was just like, I got to be, I got to, you know, I don't want to lose that edge. Well, you're probably not going to, but you're probably going to get cut open now because, you know, I, I, we just didn't know. So um, the one time that I believe that Pancrase did you a favor is in the very next fight, July 23rd, 2000. Pancrase 86, and then it's trans five. What that okay. means, I have no idea. 
Um, yes, gloves and shin pads for this fight. You fight Taro Obata. Was that the fight where I'm wearing these like real, like almost look like I was a baked potato, like a shiny tap out? Yes. Sort of half? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the guy's name. But yeah. Yeah. The guy was, he wasn't one of the main Japanese. Well, well, wait, you won by uh, arm Submission. triangle. Yeah. Arm triangle. Yeah. Yep. So I remember he wasn't one of the main Pancrase guys. He was another Japanese fighter, but he wasn't one of their main guys. So. Yeah, uh, I, I remember I went up there and we kind of got in a mix and I got him like a standing head and arm choke and I couldn't get him down. He wouldn't go. So I jumped up and I pushed off the turnbuckle and flew back and landed on the ground and submitted him. Was this a fight that like came together in Japan? Did somebody pull off the card or was this a preset fight prior to you even getting on the airplane? I don't remember. Um and you uh, I asked that I asked that because he's 03 and one and you're four four and three in terms yeah. of records. So for them to give you this, it's kind of like, do we own one? I think that I, I, I think that's probably what it was because like I said, they liked me and they wanted me to come back a lot, but um they weren't like I said, I think it was more of a situation of me just not understanding how to have the, the scoring system and all that i think they just they knew i was a good fighter and they knew i i did well especially some of those fights they call draws i think i beat up their guys and like Dude, this guy's good so uh, i think they want to try and help help develop me a little bit but i mean okay. i it would have been better if they just told me this is how you win here yeah I, you know, on that card you're you know i apologize i've, I've got my phone this, this is why i hate apple i've got my phone do not disturb yeah. And all I'm doing is I'm taking phone calls and having to put them in a, in a voicemail. So I, I apologize. Okay. Um, the, your late great training partner, as Miguel had said, Tony Ross, okay. that night won a four-man tournament. I think he got second, didn't he? Uh, it says I. Oh, I thought he won. He won the first fight, but I thought he got. I thought he fought Minowa next and got his arm ripped off. Uh, man, I'm going from like three different online records, okay. and I've already been he, proven he, twice he, wrong on stuff that I know he, I wrote down. So he fought with me that night. I remember he won. I remember he won his first fight. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was great getting there. Actually, like I like when we talk with Chael Sonnen, like when you when you make it to the top, it's good to throw that ladder down and let people come out behind you. We try to get as many people over there as we can, and Antonio's one of the guys that made it and loved it. So I was happy he got to make it over there. That's super cool. Super cool. So, Miguel, when you get a guy from Indianapolis and Chris Lytle, and you got a guy named Shoney Carter from Chicago, Ooh. who both have a lot of upside. Shoney, um, I think right from this fight, had fought world champion Pat Militic in one of the most incredible fights I have ever seen in my life on an extreme challenge. Usually you would think either try to find the biggest ticket seller, put it in their hometown, find their favorite, put it in their, you know, put it where, where the closest to them. <laughs> Instead, Pancreas 88 flies you guys all the way to Japan and puts you in a four-man tournament. And your first draw is Shoney Carter. Yeah, you would have thought, you know, we live about three hours away. We could have met in Maryville or something and, and, and fought Nick and videotaped it over and over. We fought each other. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd seen back then, you got to understand, Shoney was, he was a big name. He, and he, well-deserved. The dude was fantastic. And, um, I remember that fight going in. Um, 
I knew how good his wrestling was. And, you know, he's good. You know, he'd knock Matt Sarah out the spinning back fist. So I, I'd, I'd done some homework. I knew if you set his feet a certain way, spinning back fist is coming. So I, I was prepared yeah. for that. Um, one thing I wasn't prepared for, I don't know exactly what happened, but uh, I remember just just gassing out in that fight and getting tired. I remember I felt like, I don't remember exactly how, it ended, but I remember it was close. And it went to overtime. I remember the overtime, I got the takedown immediately. You know, I got on top of him. I was like, all right, I got this. But then he he got on top after about a minute and just let finish the fight on top and, and, and won a decision. And so I remember it. I don't remember much about how the fight went besides that. I just remember, I remember being tired. I remember being really tired. And uh, him having, I remember, I think he threw me once. He's got really good Greco, very good upper body wrestling. He can throw people over good hips. Even at this time, when we got to take into account that Shoney not only has a win over Dave Benet, but also a 20-minute draw against a future world champion, and he's always in phenomenal shape. Like, his yeah. his biggest asset is how, how hard he pushes himself in the gym. Well, and now, and uh, here's uh, the thing. It's not, <clears throat> go ahead. No, no, you go, Chris. I was going to say, it's not even the fact. Shoney, I don't know, know what his record was then, but, I mean, with so many it was, in MMA... 15, 3, and 5. But that's not counting all the other fights. He did. All, I mean, he, this dude, the thing Probably about 50 him. 50 other fights. Yeah. Exactly. So the thing that was so good about him, even more than his cardio, was his ability to not get tired of there because he was so experienced. Like, I've seen him just be in fights where he had no business winning, but his experience cares him. He knows how to not get tired. He knows how to, when he is tired, how to suck it up and just do the enough to win. And, um, I, I definitely picked up on there. Like he, he, he was able to maintain that pace a lot more than I was. And I, like I said, I, I really remember. I thought at the end, I was like, okay, that win. Then we went to overtime. It was a draw, and I remember right away, I got the takedown. And that's not like me trying to get the takedown, but I was just gas. I remember I got a takedown. I was like, okay, just hold him here. And uh, I think I tried to take his back, and he he shelled up and I I tried it and I fell off the top and he got on top and then I I think I lost the decision after that. Yeah. When I, when I think of the two of you, of you and Shoney Carter, I think of high fight IQ and good cardio, sure. and and it, it kind of it was it was one of those things where it could have went either way, based on he could have you maybe could have edged him out and got him tired or he could have got you tired and he managed to get you tired. Um, yeah. Do you think they put you guys against each other so they didn't have to deal with you both against their Japanese fighters? Let, let me point out an interesting factoid here is that at this point, Shoney Carter, Chris Lytle, two Americans meeting in Pancrase, both managed by the same person, Phyllis Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm not real sure why they, why they, I think, to be honest with you, they, I think they wanted the winner to come from the other side. They like Nate Mark. Our Marquette Quila and, and the other guy he was fighting, um, what was the guy's name? The guy he fought for it, it was uh, the guy who was ranked really high, and uh, they liked him a lot. So I they wanted us to kind of beat up on each other, and so they could have an easier path to victory over there. And you guys definitely did that. You guys, oh, yeah. you guys beat each other up. Yeah, I, I mean it was, did... it was a tough. And Shoney later lost to Nate Marquardt in the finals. You know, Nate was the eventual tournament champion. Yeah. How difficult was jet lag for you at like when you would fight in Japan? You know, a lot of Americans complain about it. 
I, I got used to it because what, what I figured out was as soon as you land, you have to go run right away. Like I had to break a sweat immediately because if, if I if I would show up there and I would just go to bed when I got there because you're tired and, and get on that, you're going to struggle for about three or four days. If I would get there and I'd force myself to stay awake and go jog and break a sweat and do whatever and get on their schedule and sleep when they should go to sleep, I, I was fine. It'd take me about two days to get over it. If not, it's going to take you three or four days. And I remember the first time I went there, I didn't realize that. And I'm, I'm, I'm grappling with people at the gym. And I'm after about two minutes, I'm getting tired. I was like, what happened? You know, what, where'd my cardio go? The next day I come back again, two minutes in, I'm tired. I was like, I'm not going to be able to fight. What's happening? And then I just had to learn how to, how to like, you know, go immediately, stay awake, fight so hard to stay awake. Cause you're going to be tired. You got to run and sweat and then get on their time system. And once I got on their time system, my body adjusted wasn't that bad. Um, at which, at this point, you're, uh, I think you're five, five and three, but just bonkers when yeah. you think about like everything that we just, just went through yeah. and you, well, get you know, your, you got to recognize in my head, I'm 25 and three. Cause I've had about 15 other fights back in the state. That's true. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, for sure. For sure. And, um, the UFC gives you the call UFC 28, yeah. you Ooh. fight Ben Earwood. How does that relationship start between yourself and Phyllis UFC. called me Phyllis called me Phyllis goes we got to fight for you in UFC because she knew that uh job ready she's like uh we're gonna give they're gonna give you a fight in the UFC I was like all right cool you know I'm excited for this but I'll be honest with you like the UFC watch like I still love it and me and my buddies would go get together and we'd watch it you know but I remember a couple of times we'd try to get together this was all the fight guys, Tony Ross, all, you know, all these guys, we get together and we couldn't get it. Like, uh, they're not caring. Like, what do you mean? We're all at this guy's house. And like the pay-per-view, you weren't allowed to get it anymore. This one is like down like three or four states. They, they, they weren't, they were having problems legalizing it in places. So it was just, it was just kind of weird time. So I remember I was, I was going to be in the first fight in Atlantic City. And here's how different it was. It was a two round fight. And like they 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 got me out there the day before the fight. Like it was a fight on a Saturday. They flew me out Friday. And the weigh-ins were Saturday morning. I remember I get there Saturday, you know, Friday night. I go run a little bit. And uh Saturday morning I went to do, you know, the weigh-ins it, like in a little room, no, no media. It was very small. And um remember they they pulled me aside, they go, Chris, uh your doctor's here. You said you got, I told you to go to ophthalmologist. And this was ophthalmologist. I'm like, what's the difference? Uh, an H. I forgot one letter. What's the difference? You know, like, no, you can't. You can't fight. You got to go to a, get this eyes test done. Like, all right, when they go right now. So I go like the day of my fight. I got to go get my eyes dilated. With the ink, you know, and they look at them doing my stuff. So I afterwards, I'm just like, you know, you can't see well. And uh, uh, but you know, they, it was a. Uh, I knew I was fighting the militants guy and. He was really odd. He like stayed right by the ring the whole time, or right by the fence. And uh, all he tried to do was hold me down, you know. And, and well, that did. was another one of my themes. I think they, they probably saw the Manet fight, and they're like, yeah, "Are you guys? Am I breaking up here?" No, 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 you're good. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, okay. Good. I think they probably watched the Manet fight, and the guy just—I mean, man—it was just the, did the bare minimum to try to hold me down, and. and 
I'll be honest, like uh, when I was there, I wasn't really overly impressed with the UFC production, anything, man. I remember thinking when I was there, I like it better in Japan, how they how they treat and how everything goes. And I was like, I don't know. Yeah, you got to understand, too, at this time, I, I, I don't go ahead. You weighed in at 167 for this fight, I might add. Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was pretty light, man. I wasn't really. You gotta understand one thing here. Uh, at this point, I mean, I'm loving it, I'm liking it, but I wasn't taking this. This wasn't a career path for me, in any way. This was never. When I go to Japan and I'm making twelve hundred bucks, and when I fought for the UFC, I fought for them. I got paid five hundred dollars. So when you're making that kind of money, that's the biggest. That's right. So when I got that kind of money, I was like, you know what? No, I'm like, this isn't, this was not a career path anymore. And I was like, if I'm making it here and this is all we're really, this was fun hobby for me at that point. You know, this is 99 still, you know, I've been doing about a year and a half. And I was like, this is fun and I enjoy it. But this is, I never thought of this as like my career. There was a few guys maybe who were making it all the time, but like, I never really looked like I was still trying to get on the fire department. Then I was like, yeah, this is just something I do for fun. But I mean, I wasn't in a real camp. I wasn't really doing things the right way. Like I said, I wasn't, you know, I was still going from job to job, trying to do things where I could still train, but not necessarily, this wasn't going to be my life path. And when you, when you got the call from the UFC, we're like, obviously now, like the UFC is kind of this Holy grail. Were you super excited about it or was it just kind of like, a lateral or just another fight? Yeah, no, I was happy about it because that was the first thing I started watching. Oh, my God, the UFC. And I was super happy. Just It was like a milestone. You know, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to make it to the UFC. Um, but after I fought there once, I was like, I'd rather go back and fight in Japan and get paid. And I think at that point, I was making like 15, 1800 bucks, which is considerably more than 500 And, man, I remember just fighting for the UFC. Like, you go to other places, they give you per diem. The UFC, they'd be like, here's a meal ticket you can eat at the at the where the the servers at the Taj Mahal eat so you'd go back there and there'd be like bus boys and like the cook staff would be there it's like it wasn't even it, it was so weird like this is all you got instead of per diem they gave you a, a, an unlimited time you could go into this place and eat I was like it was just they weren't it wasn't well ran it wasn't you weren't treated like an athlete and uh, I was like yeah I'd rather fight in Japan than anymore I didn't want to be fighting for those I'll, guys. Really. I'll tell you I'll tell you what's funny about that cuz the I I've done that deal at the Taj Mahal and it's kind of appealing in some way because the UFC rolls in with a whole crew. And the bottom line is the casino yeah. has a 24-hour restaurant for their employees cuz they got people working all the time. They go take their breaks there. And it's a full buffet. It's tons of stuff. But these guys are watching their weight. Who cares about, you know, it's like, "Oh, look, this is delicious, <laughs> but it's for the whole crew. Everybody else benefits except the fighters." Yeah, you can't have Salisbury yeah. steak and mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. That's wild. Um, shortly after that, so we're looking at November 17th, 2000. Couture Randleman. Yeah. Couture Randleman in the main event. Yeah. So Chris gets that. pinned in the Militich corner. Ben just... just Blankets him, gets his hand raised. Um, ben never gets asked back into the UFC after that fight. And um, two weeks later, um, actually less than that, 
November 24th, 2000. Chris, you fight in the bad boy competition. Do you remember that? Was it's that a four-man tournament. Was that in Kokomo? Where's I'm not that? sure. It th- here, it doesn't list where it's at. My feelings are that it's a Gary Myers event. And the reason is because the first round you fight Beaver Beaver. That's the guy's actual listed name on your record. And in the second round, you fight Mike Haltum. But Mike Haltum, after losing to you, fights another two times that night. And they're not tournament fights. And he's from Gary Myers' camp. So I'm, a, I'm assuming Gary was trying to piece together a card and kept sending his buddy out there to kind of, you know, complete, uh, you know, the nine-man schedule. Do you recall this? I think that- yeah, I think that was in Muncie, <clears throat> and oh uh, uh, yeah, that was uh, the first guy. I th- Beaver Beaver's not his real. I remember what it was, but I it, don't believe. I think it. his nick. No, yeah, it's his real name. <laughs> his nickname was the Squirrel. He was terrible. I was like, I, I mean, I was like, dude, I fought in the UFC. Why am I fighting this guy? But it it lasted about thirty seconds. I punched him and choked him, and it was it. And then uh, the guy, the that the other guy, I fought was a guy named Mike Holter or something. Mike Halton. That guy was pretty tough, man, but that was one guy. This is when knees to the head were still legal because I remember um, I got him on the ground, and I I remember, like, I put the knee way back. Boom, and knee him in the head once. Boom, knee him in the head twice. And I went to knee him the third time, and he rolled over to his stomach, which meant you can choke me now. I'm going to go out with honor. I'm not going to tap him to strike. So he rolled over. I choked him, and he tapped out because it was like – it was honoring it, you know. He didn't tap because I was beating him up. He tapped because he couldn't breathe. There's no, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, Mike. Quit judging him for tapping to that. <laughs> I used to love it when that was, that was a way you could tell when people would roll, like. I, I love knees in the head because people, you know, you either got to move, you got to figure out what to do, or you find the way out. He found the way out. Who was the promoter? I can't remember. If it was Gary Myers or these two? guys named jeremy jeremy and jeremy something or other i can't remember there was two guys named jeremy who would put on fights for a while in indy or in muncie right right around that time but i can't remember which one it was. i think it was those two jeremy guys okay so you take a little bit of time off when i say a little bit of time about three months and you fight in a circle city challenge against nick hyde after that and nick is one and one and after you beat him on that same event <laughs> oh no you got a draw against nick was there no judges here's, that? here's the funny thing i feel bad for this because really this ruined this hurt nick in a way this was an exhibition match here's what happened i was supposed to fight somebody nick was supposed to fight how it worked was we actually had a gym at this point we had integrative fighting and how we would pay for the rent was we put on a fight about every two months and all the money, nobody get paid. All the money would go to gym fees. So I had a flight schedule with a guy and he had a fight schedule. Neither one of our guys showed up. We were training partners for God's sake. We were training partners. We're like, Hey man, let's just get out there. And this was a straight kickboxing fight. And he was a, he was a great kickboxer. He's my kickboxing coach. We're like, let's just go out there and put on a good fight. We beat the shit out of each other, man. Jason's out there losing his mind, going nuts. Because, I mean, he kicked me in the lip and knocked me over on punch. He's got black guy. I mean, we're, we put on the best fight of the night. We just, beat the, we just beat the shit out of each other. And afterwards, they're like, it's an exhibition, so it's just going to be a draw. No matter. That shouldn't even be on my record. I don't get it. But uh, um, but Nick, I remember later on, Nick had trouble getting some fights. Because, like, you got to draw with Chris Lytle. I'm not fighting you. You know, <laughs> so 
he had trouble getting some fights afterwards, but Nick was an absolute animal on his feet. So a uh, great, great competitor. And um, that was a fun fight just for, just for fun, but uh, it wasn't a real fight. It was an exhibition, but we, we sure went at it. It was all stand up too. Yeah. There's, there's, there's like little things on people's records. Obviously I, you know, when we notice that we always like to address it with the person that was the one thing that stood out outside of fighting beaver beaver the, the time before. Um, so March 30th, 2001, you fight in one of my favorite events of all time. We've talked about it, you know, numerous times in the past on this podcast, reality shoot fighting three, the person you carpooled with up to that eight man tournament in extreme challenge, you fight Dave Strasser. Oh shit. That's right. That's right. Uh, Randy Greenman over in uh, uh, St. Louis, East St. Louis. Yes. Belvedere. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, man, like I said, once again, I always liked Dave. and uh, But, you know, they said, hey, this is who you're fighting. I was like, all right. So uh, I believe once again, another draw. Yeah, another draw. And this, okay. And I know we've we've talked about this guy before. If, if you guys would mind if I indulge one more time. Randy Greenman took over the territory from a guy named uh, Brian, uh, was it Brian Mason? Miguel? I'm not sure. Come on. Steve Berger used to fight for him all the time. Brian oh, Madison? Ma Brian Madden. Man. Brian Madden. God, that was it. Okay, yeah. Brian Madden has a heart attack, and Randy Greenman takes over. And in essence, what takes place is um, Randy is dealing a lot of cocaine with the bikers. And he's washing. You know, he's washing Alleged. a lot of alleged no it's it's confirmed it's confirmed <laughs> he's washing a lot of his money through his shows and he ends up in um a bunch of different pieces all over southern illinois when his the original drug dealer comes back yeah we, we talked about this with steve Berger and his interview kind of in depth but on that same card you've got manny gambarian versus sean shirk so like some of those those fights in yeah you know, reality shoot fighting. Oh my gosh, incredible! incredible. A lot of good yeah. UFC veterans there. A lot, yeah. a lot of UFC know, veterans on those cards. Pablo Escobar bought like hippos and giraffes and stuff. Randy Greenman put on real fights, at least yeah. you know, and and he paid real money. <laughs> the, the The bottom line is, is he had made five hundred bucks for a UFC fight. You probably made maybe two grand for a Strasser fight. I don't know, but uh, I'm guessing. Yeah, he overpaid. And, and yeah. you know, you said Pablo Escobar bought like hippos and rhinos and stuff like that. This guy had a stripper girlfriend that had aftermarket boobs put on her, dude, that were were ridiculous. Like the novelty section of a bookstore is where you find those DVDs. Uh, yes. And, and you yep. could have you, you you could have divided Randy Greenman in two and had two people that probably couldn't make the UFC's heavyweight class. They'd be over. I agree. Yeah, he was. He was over 500 he's a, pounds. He's, he's a big great guy. Yeah, he was a super dude, cool, great man. guy. I remember, uh, I remember fighting that fight. Um, Strasser's tough, man. I remember a couple of things. I remember I didn't like it because it was in a ring, you know, and I've had problems with rings. And you go, you go in the ring, and I remember at one point, like, getting to the ground, and I was trying to do this guillotine, and we had caught up on the ropes. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to lift them and roll them over, and then when we get back, go to the middle, and all of a sudden, I got the guillotine. He dropped your hips. I'm like, I got no chance of rolling this guillotine now. You know what I mean? I know I'm going to be – I know I have no chance of this now. So, little things like that in the ring. Um, but I remember he he did a good job. He was on top a lot. Um, 
I remember the weirdest thing about that was one point I'm pushing him into the ropes. You know, I'm trying, I'm pushing him into the ropes and he reached his heel around and pulled it back and like hit me with his heel right in my calf. I remember thinking, the hell's that? That thing hurt me for like two weeks later. You know, it didn't really hurt me during the fight, but two weeks like <laughs> they hurt me for a long time. But that, I think it was a tough fight. He was, uh, I remember, I mean, Dave was a tough guy and he had a good strategy. He tried to hold me down quite a bit. And I, I don't remember much about that fight besides it was the draw. I, I yeah. could I could give to give Dave a little more props. You know, he uh he had been off for almost a year at that point, and he was coming back after having uh, his neck fused after a car, a car uh, a motorcycle accident. So uh, so yeah, the fact that he was fighting is a testament to how tough he was. Yeah, two uh, two future UFC veterans, you know, uh, yeah. on that card. You know, fantastic, fantastic yeah. problem. Um, Bill, Illinois, the one exit town. In, yeah. in hey, don't let it fool you, though. Belleville's rough, man. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. Well, it's not Mayberry when I say one exit town. Yeah. <laughs> is, uh, yeah, yeah. It's even to this day, like it's it's a, it's a rough place. And quick side note: the reason we know that stuff about the washing money and all that stuff is because it came out in the trial for for those who were who caught cut them up in pieces were held accountable. Oh, they and, were good. You know, good. I did not know that. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm comfortable talking about it. Yeah, if we talk about it, go listen to the Steve Berger interview. It is an incredibly interesting like part like of, of MMA history within the Midwest. Um, two weeks after that, Chris, you fight Jake Ambrose on Miguel Arati's favorite promoter's card, Chad Wagner. How does that so fight come about? We're looking like 2001 at this point, aren't we? It's April, April 14, 2000, 2001. Okay, this is funny because I remember... I, I, I'd signed to do that. I remember how uh, somebody asked me to do it. I was like, sure, I'll do it. And I remember, you know, I, I, I just got on the fire department and they were like, you're not allowed to do, you know, I'm not allowed to do any extracurricular activities or that. I was like, all right, cool. So I made sure I was still, in, I just started training for the fire department. So it was on the weekend. So I remember not saying a word to anybody. Didn't want that to get out that I fought. There was no very little, I didn't even tell people I was a fighter at this point. I mean, some people kind of knew, but, so I remember, you know, I worked Friday, you know, at the fire department, you know, I was still in training. And then uh, Saturday went and fought. I won in the first round and didn't get hit at all. No black guys like, cool. Went back, <laughs> went to the fire house. So, I mean, he, he seemed like a pretty tough dude. I think I choked him. I think I can't remember exactly what happened. Jake yeah, was tough, choke. but you, you got him in less than two minutes. But yeah, he was a tough guy yeah. for the day. Yeah. Yeah. He was a tough guy. I've seen him fight before, but I was like, man, I was really thinking I got to get out of this unscathed. I'm not going to go out there and throw a bunch of hands and do anything nonsense. I know it's going to go out there, get him the ground as soon as I can choke him and get my, get my uh, money and get out. How was Chad Wagner as a promoter? Uh, he was always fine to me, but I think, you know, he knew <laughs> I was from team integrated. He had Jason Gotchi and his, he had all these guys. He wasn't going to rip us off. You know what I mean? So, but, uh, <laughs> You know, I like Chad. You funny guy. Yeah, I, I knew, I knew, I knew he's gonna. I knew we were gonna be fine by him because he knew us and he wasn't going anywhere, so he was gonna be fine. Now keep so in mind, too, this was this was the second cage. Sorry, Mike, but this is the second cage rage where Chad may have been trying to do a little bit of the right thing still, you know, because you know Tony Ross was on that card. He had some guys that fought Daryl Smith, Jay Massey, uh, Miguel Torres was on that card, Midwest oh. legend. And stuff. So, still trying to do the right thing before, you know. Later on, he did have <laughs> grandmother's fight, you know. So he went it, all it, 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 well, it, it got weird. 
I remember this one too, because I remember I'm there and one of my guys, I think uh, Aaron Sullivan fought in some tournament. He fought against uh, one of the guy, a guy who ended up committing suicide later from Hammer House. And so yeah, Aaron Sullivan won against Nate Burris and uh, Jeremy Brown that day. He, I think he lost against Jeremy Brown, didn't that? I mean, they listed as a win on Sherdog. Sure okay, I think they disqualified Jeremy Brown because I think he gets Aaron and something, and he's torquing his arm, and, people, and, like, somehow he did something illegal, and, like, Aaron starts tapping, but they, like, I think they disqualified the other guy. So this guy gets up and gets, like, my the corner's yelling at him, and um, I threw a on him, and him through the cage. So the pandemonium erupts in the ring. Everybody's going nuts. I'm about to come out, so I'm in the back warming up, and all my people are about to walk out with me. And all of a sudden, I remember Randleman busting the door. You know, you know, and his neck, you know, veins in his neck are coming out. He's freaking out, yelling at everybody because all of he's roided up or what, but he's pissed off. And everybody starts yelling at each other. I'm like, maybe uh, both. Yes. <laughs> and I'm, I remember because I'm like, um, could you guys do this? And I'm walking out to the fight right now. Could you guys get out of my way? Because everybody's like starting to fight. And uh, I remember, like, Coleman was there, Randleman was there. And I just remember Randleman coming in just house of fire, just pissed off at our whole team, you know. And I'm like, I'm going to go fight, and I'll be right back. So <laughs> by the time I got back, they calmer heads had prevailed. It was cool after that. But, yeah, Randall come in, come in, just wanting to fight my whole team right before I go get in the cage. It was pretty funny. I was always a little intimidating, too, and Randleman, you know, on a, whatever he was on just comes in, with, you know, veins coming out of his neck, trying to fight everybody around. It was pretty funny. Randleman was not known for his pleasant disposition. <laughs> like, and not, he can get mad pretty quick. Zero to hundred. Yeah, can you imagine trying to just have a level-headed conversation with Kevin Randleman after one of his teammates just lost? Well, Kevin, here's what happened. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I tried. I, I had an interview with him, and he said, I'm going to ask you a question first. Why shouldn't I kill you? <laughs> That's literally how we started the interview. I was like, well, I'm a reporter. You know, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good random idea. Yeah. yeah so he, I remember uh, Coleman was there too. That's so funny. That Coleman was mad too. It's just like, uh, dude, it was chaos, man. But. It, it, the scary part is Mark Coleman is more is the level-headed He's boss. the level <laughs> The voice of reason was Mark Coleman in the end of the night. Yeah. That's frightening. No, yeah, I, I met yes. Coleman, and he, he was crazy. You know, I, I met him like a few times, uh, or whatever. And I was like, "Oh wow, this guy's so crazy!" It's like everybody's like, "You should have met Randleman." Like, yeah, <laughs> you should have met those two together. Ooh, yeah. Well, that, the thing is, is you know, hats off to Chad because really, that's Mark Coleman and Randleman's show. There's nobody who's going to stop them if they want oh. whatever they want to do. It's going to happen. You know. Oh, <laughs> Give your gate money to them. It's over. Go home. <laughs> it's just over. I mean, we had team integrated there. We were formidable opponents, but it would have been. It was going to be. It was almost. It was almost Hammer House versus integrated. You know. Yeah, yeah. But like well, I said, you would have made it to your cars. Players. Yeah, you would have made it to your cars. Oh, we had a fought. Minimum. We had a fought, man. Yeah. I mean, we had. We, yeah. we were rolling deep. We probably had eight guys there. There four. So we'd have been. It'd have been a fun one, but. I was getting ready to fight, so I had to wait till I was done with my fight. You know, I didn't get paid. <laughs> and and you know, tell you what kind of fighter you are, where you're like, that would have been fun. <laughs> like everybody yeah, I mean, no, it, it, it would have been a story, man. But, you know, uh, yeah. I, I actually like those guys. Like, that was cool with Coleman. I didn't really know Randleman was. I was like, I'm going to just 
steer clear of him because he just looked like he was just a nut, you know, coming out blonde hair, just especially like I said, the veins coming out. So he was like looking around us for something to break. I'm like, dude, uh, I'm getting ready. To get, I'm getting ready to fight. Out of my way, you know. I gotta go right now. They called my name. You know what I mean? It's just like, and he's back there. Yeah, oh, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, he, he's the kind of guy though. He'd be standing there happy and calm, and he's still scary as shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so Chris, you had mentioned the fire department. Is yeah. that the reason? Is that the reason you had taken an eight-month break? Yeah, that's exactly it. Because, like I said, that was my last fight. I was like, man, I already have this scheduled. I'm gonna go ahead and do it, and then I can't really do it at this. Because if I get hurt, I mean, I knew, like I said, this is still my point. Like, this isn't a career. This is a fun thing for me to do. This is not. A, I was like, man, when you're making. You know, fifteen hundred bucks here, two thousand here. You're getting a little bit of money, but I mean, I'm not. I have kids. <laughs> it's like I can't make this my life. You know, and the fire department was something I've been wanting to do for a while. I've been trying for, I, and I got. You know, I, I I've been hired. I mean, you know how long these processes are. You're doing like a eight month process to get hired. I've been I've done, tried out for a couple of them, and I finally got hired. I was actually in recruit class. I'm like I got to take some time off. I just can't do it until after I'm done with this. All right, so there's certain footnotes in MMA that don't really get the recognition that they deserve because maybe possibly of where they're from or where, where they fought at. And your next opponent on December 1st, 2001, in Pancrase again, with gloves, no shin pads, is Kazoo Misaki. Oh, yeah. So, He's a bad boy, man. That dude is good. So let, let's define what bad boy actually means he's the 2006 pride welterweight grand champion he beat dan henderson and um in 2010 he fought uh, jorge santiago in what is widely considered the fight of the year in sengoku like this guy when you look at his record he's five and oh at the time <coughs> you're listed as nine six and five probably more like 19 six and five um He's undefeated, and he's got to win over Dan Henderson. So going into that fight, what were your expectations? Well, I knew he was, he was with the, that team Gara or whatever they were. He was part Grabaca. of that. Huh? Grabaca. Grabaca. He was part of Team Grabaca, and I remember. So I knew this dude's good, and I've seen him fight a couple of times. Like, this guy's big, strong. You know, he, he's a tough fighter, but I was like, you know, I'm still thinking, you know, I'm as good as any of these guys. So, um I went out there as a pancreas and, uh, you know, I, I knew I had the gloves. I said, this is more in my world. I felt like than his. Um, so I went out there and just kind of took it to him, man. I mean, it was actually a, a fight that I actually utilized a little bit of wrestling. I took him down and got on top several times and just kind of, I remember, I remember my buddy Alex Stiebling's in the corner and I'm like doing some, I'm, I, I think it's in a third round and I'm, he's got, I knew he's got good jujitsu. So, you know, you're in the garden. It's hard to move around too much without getting, triangle or whatever so i'm like doing a couple of body body head is hit him there he's like what are you a militant fighter get up and pass the guard he's yelling at me i'm like dude <laughs> you're on my team here can you help me out here quit trying to yell at me that i'm doing shit wrong the judges are listening to it you know what i mean so but uh i just kind of dominated i think all all three rounds and, and beat yeah. him yeah I, in, he never really my... had anything on that i didn't think chris phenomenal win thank you i mean and, and that guy was like i said that dude was that dude was really good. I, I knew it going in, but uh, like I said, I felt like I could beat anybody at any given night, and I just uh, kind of handled him the whole night. 
and, and going going back to so now you're on the fire department. Uh, are you are you did you kind of get their permission? Or are you kind of concerned I might I might lose my my professional? Like is that is that playing into your mental state or, or is no, it just man? I, I I talked to him like I said. After I was done with recruit class, you know, I was allowed to kind of do it. I talked to them about it, and uh, they loved it. You know, I was I was one of the department. And they, as long as I got my my times taken care of, a trays, go right ahead. Um, I know a lot of people concerned, like, well, if you get hurt really bad, you're probably gonna lose your job. And I'm thinking, I mean, maybe, but I mean, I'm not gonna get hurt really bad. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not gonna. Hey, maybe. So I was like, I was like, I just won't get hurt real bad. That's how dumb I was. Let me. Get, I just thought, I, you know, I, I've been fighting for a long time. I've never been hurt really bad besides the shoulder thing. But, I mean, what I, I fought three months later, so how bad could I have been hurt? You know what I mean? So I'll be all right. Yeah, yeah I mean, you could get hurt doing anything. You get hurt driving your yeah. car or whatever. And, so. and like I said, I always heal really quick. Like I said, separate is shoulder. I've seen people be out for six months for this one, you know, before they even train again. I fought again three months, so. Chris, how much of an influence did your time in Japan have on your ground game? Oh, man, a lot. You know, that's where I really learned. I mean, it was really great when I, when I was there, and I'm going against some of the best guys in the world at the time. You know, in the, in the late 90s, I don't know who was better, really, than those, the, the guys in Pancrase. So, I mean, I guess a lot of that you could say the, the, the Jiu-Jitsu graces, but it was just a different style. So, but, I mean, I remember, you know, we'd start – you know, in like leg lock position, go and you'd go there for five minutes and just go back and forth different positions. And just um, I learned how to relax, how to get put myself in a bad position and just work your way out, um, not get submitted. You know, I just learned from repetition and repetition hour after hour and going with the best guys, some of the best guys in the world and, and being put in bad spots and working your way out. And I've always felt like a lot of people don't do that enough. They they work on what they're good at, but they get caught in a bad spot. They don't know what to do. Well, I'd already, we'd start with people taking my back. I'd start with you having the hooks in. And then how do you get out from there? And that's just trial and error and figure it out and hour after hour after hour of, of starting like that. So, you know, I would love it when we do a day like, okay, we're doing 10 rounds, you know, five minutes each, and you're going to rotate. And, and like, I'm rotating with just, you know, guys who've had 30 fights in Pancrase and have been trained there for five years. They were really, really good. You know what I mean? So when you do that for, you know, a couple months, you get pretty good pretty quick. So that that's where I really developed my my whole, like, knowing what to do in every single situation. And there's no substitute besides time and mat time, what I call it. So the, my mat time really came then. It was just every day, six days a week, you know, twice a day, you were doing something. Oh, wow. well, a lot of wrestlers, it takes them years to ever get comfortable on the bottom, and some never do. Is that where you get got comfortable with your your bottom game? Is that where I you think got I was always kind of comfortable right there, but that definitely helped. I mean, I've seen some a few wrestlers who like adapt to it well, um, and a lot of them, a lot of them always went on top. I've had a couple. I, really, I had a guy from uh, Purdue Wrestling came in, um, and, and he's been training some of us. I haven't seen him in the last few months, so maybe he's stopped now. But I mean. He was really doing very um, – uh, Dylan Lighty, really doing well off his back, and he was just willing to try. I think that was me. I, like, I knew – right when I first started training, when I talked about, like, with Jason, those guys, I was probably one of the smallest guys in the gym. Um, a lot of the guys were 250 pounds, you know, and I was 170. 
Uh, I couldn't be on top most of the time. I had to learn to be on bottom and, and how to work off my back. I had to wait patiently for them to, to, to do what they were going to do. And then I wasn't going to move them. I had to wait to move myself after they were doing what they were going to do. Because if I'm trying to, well, that big guy Fergie, he was over 300 pounds. I'm not moving Fergie. You know, I have to wait till he <laughs> moves a certain way. And then I can move myself or push off him to move myself. So um, I learned not to waste energy, and I learned to, that's how one way I was able to go really, really long amounts of time because I learned how to not waste energy. And, and because it's stupid to go out there and waste energy to get the big, strong guy, you're not going to win that fight. So you have to use your brain, not necessarily a strength. Okay. So your next fight is at the IFC 17. Originally, you were slated to fight Jake Shields. Yeah. I mean, it was two, you know, submission guys ready to go at it, and yeah. Jake Shields breaks his leg. Do you remember who they replaced him with? Yeah, Nick Diaz. Yeah, that's right. Nick Diaz. I remember, I, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Like, pro debut against, you know, you know I think an almost like 20 fight veteran no. Chris Lytle. I think it's like one or two, no, but they're like, we got this guy. Uh, he, he won Grappler's Quest, and he's won these other grappling things. I remember thinking, whatever, dude. Uh, I've had a bunch of fights. I'm not getting beat by some 19, 20 year old kid from Grappler Quest. I don't even know what that is. So, all right. So, I remember going in there, and I remember I'm talking about this is the worst hotel I've ever stayed at. That Paul Bunyan Motel or Lodge, whatever. It was like, I remember it was like, like if you, you like Alex was there with me, like in his room, like some of these TV channels work, and in mine it was different. Like you never had one TV that would work quite right. You. Try to open the drawers and like the drawer would fall off. It was such a shitty place. And it was so hot out there, man. I remember it was in the middle of the desert. Like it was, it was an Indian reservation, but it was, in, it was like, there's no, it was like a road back among mountains and rocks. There's nothing there. And I remember, you know, you, it, it had to be a hundred degrees that day. Now, luckily by the time I fought, it was nighttime, it wasn't a hundred degrees, but it was still hot. And I remember, you know, start off at the beginning, I was like, okay, I feel good. And um, I went up there. I felt like I I did good the first round. I remember uh, like, this kid's pretty tough, though, man. I mean, he had well, an awkward the, style. But. Chris, there was a lot of clinching. And like in your other fights in the past, you wouldn't mind taking the bottom position in order to, yeah. like you said, not wasting energy. You refused to do that in this bout. What was yeah. the reason behind that? I think that was just my evolution and kind of learning a little bit. Like some of the fights I'd lost was because I was on bottom, you know, I lost that earwood fight. I lost the Monet fight. And I'm like, you know what? Um, learning a little bit more and getting as far as like the top position is more dominant. I don't want to be on bottom if possible, you know? And that was just, once again, at, at some point, you know, if you have to be on there because you, you're going against a bigger guy. Like when I was in Japan, there was no weight class. It was a difference. But here it's like, okay, I'm in my weight class. I want to be on top. I want to try and, you know, do what you have to do. You know, I can submit people from the bottom, but you can also, I can also do more damage from the top. So I want to be on top if possible. Hmm. So second round, you definitely win the first round. It was a hard first round. Yeah. Why don't you walk us through the second? Second round, um, you know, this dude, I remember, he, he doesn't seem to get tired at all. And I didn't really realize his cardio was so on point then. But he, he keeps coming. I remember at one point, you know, I'm sweating pretty good. I remember one point, I am on bottom, and I go for a heel hook. And I flip my leg to it, and I have a really good heel hook locked up. Um, I thought I got it, but I, it kept sliding off because we were sweating. I was like, damn it, I think I got this. 
but I couldn't finish the hook. So he gets on top and spins around. And this was, these were still legal to the head there. Cause I remember I set him up, I positioned myself and I need him in the face from bottom and cut him open. Yeah. I, and I remember he's bleeding all over the place. I was like, okay, I was, I'm not gonna lie to you. I was hoping they stopped the fight. <laughs> Cause I was like, he's bleeding. He's bleeding good. We gotta stop this fight. So, um, <laughs> but he did a good job of holding position. And I think he had me in an arm bar at one point, but I slid out of it, you know, um, he showed some good submission skills, but, uh, you know, I showed the ability to get out of his stuff. So do you recall any of the chatter during the fight between either yourself and Nick or Nate Diaz from his corner? No, I don't. What, do you remember what was being oh, said? Man. Yeah, it, it, after you cut him open, he said that it was just a little scratch, that cut wasn't shit. And it, hey, the cut's fine and it's shit! That was Nate Diaz, you know, yelling yeah. at Nick. And... Um, yeah, no, Nate, Nate had the frosted tips going and his hair yeah, and was yeah. talking the whole time, man. Like, Nate, Nate didn't stop. I remember, I remember, so after that, and I remember, like I said, it's hot. And I remember my buddy, Alex, he, like, put this cold towel on me after the second round. He's like, I got this. You want me to put it after the first second? I was like, so he put it on me. I was like, I was like man, I'm, I'm hurt, man. He was like, all right, man, you, you're looking good. You know, just go out there. Um, you're looking really good on your feet. So uh, keep it up. I was like, all right. So the third round starts, and probably by the first two minute minute, I'm, I'm looking good on my feet. And then uh, I get in, I get a takedown. I just like, okay, I'm done. I'm gonna hold him down for a while. And uh, my corner, Alex starts yelling, "Damn him up, ref!" Stand him up, and I'm just like, stop, you know, no, you know. And, and so, <laughs> about a minute and a half left in the fright, they uh, they stood us up. And I'm done. I have nothing left. And Nick hits me with a, like a one-two. Bob, I cut my eye open. And so I'm like, oh, you know, I can't see. I pull guard. And um, he ends around on top, throwing punches. So I remember I went to Alex. I'm like, dude, what did you tell him to stand me up for, man? He's like, I thought you were winning on your feet. <laughs> I was like, thanks. You know what I mean? So uh, goes to split decision. I lose the split decision. But it's a close fight, man. I mean, I have no – you could have said I, I – I mean – you could have said I won. You could have said I don't know. It was a tough fight. He earned it. He, you know what? He, there was a hard fight. Yeah. Definitely. Whether he won or lost, man, he had. But on his record, that's his first pro fight. That's his pro <laughs> debut, whether that's true or not. Yeah, I thought he was here. already had a couple of fights. But um, I remember after that was when, uh, yeah, that was, I told you guys before, that was a fight where I was like, I remember sitting in Al with Alex after that in, in uh, my hotel room. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm done here, man. Because like I said, this wasn't a career. This was for fun. And at that point, it, uh, that that was the, the worst time at that point where this was not fun. You know, I was like, I'm getting beat by 20-year-old kids who haven't had much experience. Like, I fought in UFC. I fought in Japan a lot. I was like, this is, this is, uh, this is very disheartening, man. It hurts my heart to go out there and lose to somebody who's a nobody is what I said. This dude's nobody. I can't be getting beats by nobody's. This isn't, I'm not going to do this anymore. This is not fun anymore. And I remember him talking to me about it and just like, man, I get it. And he was like, you know what? This is what he's in pride doing. Where he's like, you know what, Chris? I'm going to be here one day. I know it. I'm going to be right where you are. And I was like, ah, well, I'm here now. So I don't really care. And then I felt good mm -hmm. because about a year later, Nick's in the UFC doing well. So I felt, I felt better after that. I didn't know he was going to be Nick Diaz, obviously, but you know, you think he just got beat by somebody who's a nobody, you know, it, it hurt me bad, man. It, and that sucked. So what were weigh-ins like? 
Um, there wasn't any talk, man. There was no really? talk. Going. No, uh-uh. Not that I remember, man. He wasn't talking trash at all. I mean, I'm he was disappointed in that. Yeah, but I, you know, he was pretty new at that, and, and so I remember I talked to him a little bit afterwards, you know, and he was all right. And I remember I talked to Nate. Nate was just a young kid. There's probably 15, you know, and he hung out with us for a long time and talked to us. But I wasn't much in the mood. But we he hung out in our room for a little bit and just talking about how good of a fight it was and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, man, whatever, thanks. And uh, you know, I wasn't really in the mood, but uh, I was cool to him. And then uh, like he's liked me ever since, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, those those guys they really only seem to get nuts when they when they feel like they've been disrespected. I mean, because they've only had a handful of those. True. When they do have those inter, you know, those interactions, they're legendary and you remember them forever. Yeah. But it's really only a few. Only a few people really brought that out of them. Here's there, there are no punks, man. Like if you if you do do anything they consider disrespectful, it's on. You know what I mean? Wow. They're not gonna take that stuff. Chris, that that's that's like a like a finish line that tends to move. Like for instance, we just had Joe Dorkson on, or not Joe Dorkson, uh, Joe Riggs. Joe Riggs. <laughs> and Joe Riggs, you know, Joe's like trying to be, you know, he's a hothead too. Just in passing, Joe says, hey man, hey, you know, good luck or whatever. And Nick goes, are you gonna make weight this time? Because he missed by 0.5 pounds for championship <laughs> weight for a title fight. Yeah. So he came in at 170 and a half, which is making weight in normal circumstances. Yeah. And after that, like the relationship just exploded and, and Joe went on to document five other additional times <laughs> of where they fist fought on site just because of that, that one interaction. And it's just like, the disrespect could just be like, well, he winked at me wrong. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're just, hey, what's up, dude? I like Nick was like gave him a dirty look. I guess to the, the, he came over to my side of the hospital. He knows I'm crazy. He knows I'll come after him. That's on him. I'm like, that's interesting logic. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like you really can't understand where. Well, our families have fought for 300 years. It's like it, it doesn't really compute. And then you talk to the Diaz, and you're like, yeah, that kind of hey. makes sense. I can see how situations <laughs> like that can arise. Uh, but like I said, if they if they think you're a legit fighter and you come out and you're grinding your hard nose, they, they, they like you, man. I mean, if you're, you're one of them. They think you're one yeah. of them. You're one of them. It is what it is. But if you if you're not one of them, they don't like you. Yeah. So Chris, you take some time off. Obviously, you had to do some soul searching yeah. after that that took place, and you fly back to Japan, and you're the co-main event against Yuji Hoshino. Mike, you're like five for five, dude. Man, big out, dude. Thank you, bro. I was going to interrupt Chris in mid-answer just to kind of give myself props again. I appreciate you acknowledging that. So, Yuji Oshino, um, the thing about him was it's gloves, no shin pads. Oh! He's got a win over Carlos Carvalho, who fought in the UFC, Canadian guy, super tough. Brian Garrity, in our interview with him, just couldn't believe just how, how good he was. And he also went three rounds with Nate Marquardt before he got triangle. <laughs> now, Chris, you do you do you remember this? It seems like you're kind of this is. I would bring yeah, it I didn't it. at first, but I think this is the fight. The closest I've ever been to being knocked out in a fight was by this guy. It ended in the first round. You won by. Oh, no. Never mind. Yes, you won by triangle, and like there's okay, instances no, in, in fighters' careers, like when we interviewed Chael Sonnen. 
we didn't get to it during the interview, but I said that Trevor Prangley, that second fight, there's an instance in that where he levels up. And this is your fight, in my opinion. You're super aggressive. You went out there for the kill. And this is a very well-rounded opponent. And Pancrase, and once again, you started the fight with a low bro, low blow. And at this point, you kind of knew the, you know, what, what, what that I'm means. I'm in trouble. Yeah. You're in trouble. Yep. And you went out and you finished him. Like, I've never seen you this aggressive in a fight ever. Yeah, yeah, I do. But that's a different fight than I was saying. But, yeah, um, yeah, as soon as that happened, I was like, here we go again. Because I, 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 I'll be honest, I had a chip on my shoulder when I'd go to Japan at that point. Because I was like, they, I'd lost enough really close decisions and a couple fights I thought I won that they didn't give me. So I was like, I'm not letting this happen again. And, and that was the first time, I think, where I had started giving this – I don't care attitude. I was like, man, I, I, I've had this happen twice. And that was the first time where I was like, I feel like I'm good enough. And I'm skilled enough where if I just go out there and let it all hang out, I'm going to win most of my fights. So um, trying to be reserved and outpoint somebody. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore, man. I just got to go out and fight. Cause you know, that, that Nick Diaz fight, you know, at the end I trying to hold him down cause I'm tired. Didn't work out for me. I was like, you know, whatever. I'm just going to come out and try and take people out the whole time. And that, this is a, that was the first time in my career where I felt that's where I kind of really started trying to fight like that. Do you know what's kind of disturbing about this fight? And I mean, this is so far off topic, but like I had to rewind it just to make sure like, like I saw what it is I think I saw. The cup check by the referee. Oh my God, dude. Oh, Chris. <laughs> Chris, you might have a lawsuit oh. on your hands. I'm what if I'm not wearing a cup? What if I'm not one? <laughs> on his knees, both hands. Oh, Chris. Chris, you're a victim. Oh, God. Hey, man, what are you going to do? Not your fault. Like, is this it's what? Is your this? Fault. Me too? Me too? Yeah. <laughs> it's not your fault. You're Hashtag a victim, Chris. Hashtag me too. Yeah. So, from there, um, October to December, you're fighting Pancreas Spirit 9. Oh, who can shoot veteran Miguel Dorate? Izuru. Takeuchi. This is a guy I think this was the closest I've ever been to being knocked. Wait, wait, wait. Excuse yeah. me, Chris. He, he, Miguel. The, I said Izuru Takeuchi. Yeah, you're six for six, Mike. You know, killed it. You Sorry, don't have Chris, to. Go ahead. Go ahead now we're, now it's we're about you, ex- not me. Not, we're going to expect you to string together a couple of shows now, but uh, exactly. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, here, Takeuchi had uh, on the fight card previous. Uh, had just beaten Nate Marquardt just for yeah. for uh, a framework. Well, I, so I remember I remember thinking this guy's a wrestler. You know, this guy's gonna try and get me down, whatever. So I'm thinking, okay, um, I'm gonna go out there. And, and what year is this in? It's 2002, December 21st. So I've already been now. I've been doing some pro boxing. So I'm like, all right. And so I'm gonna go out there. And you got Keith Palmer in your corner. Keith Palmer, so this guy's stand-up's rotten. I'm going to take this guy out right away. I'm coming with the big right hand. So I go out there. He's a wrestler. I'm like, I know what he's going to try and do. He's going to try to take me down. So I go out there and try and throw this big overhand right. And as soon as I do that, immediately, all of a sudden, I see us. I'm on the ground. And I'm like, what, what happened? You know, and, and this guy is on top of me trying to hit me. So I'm like, oh, Jesus. So then I start grabbing, trying to recover. And I, I hold him in tight, and then I eventually 
get on top at the end of that round and keep trying to fight. And I remember I, I go over to the corner afterwards, like, Keith, did he hit me with the uppercut? What happened? He's like, dude, jumping knee. So it was like a Ben Asker type without the run. Like, he just went out there, and as soon as I threw the right hand, he threw a jumping knee, laying it right in my face. I didn't even see it. Like, I never saw it. I still haven't seen it. I haven't seen the tape. All I knew was I threw a big right hand, and I'm on the ground. Like, uh, it was like, it flashed me. He knocked me out, really, and I, the ground woke me up because I was like, how'd I get on the ground? You throw a right Chris, hand. I think you're confusing. I think you're confusing. That what? might have been Koji Oishi. Okay, okay. What, who is that? Right, so so here, here's the thing when you got a 55 veteran like Chris Lytle. They have These fought... Japanese names mean nothing to me. I don't know. <laughs> okay, right. Dude, dude, and I'm, Chris, I'm pointing out when I barely pronounce them properly, and you know what? Some would even argue I'm probably been wrong every single yeah. name that's come out of my mouth. <laughs> so that's the next Japan fight after this, and that's the okay. last time you fought in Japan. Where okay. Phyllis Lee was also in your corner, but I, I'm going to kind of take you back to kind of spur some memories on this. In the okay. first round, you were super dominant, and you had his back oh, for like I four minutes. But I, you were going for a rear naked choke for like about 90 seconds, but it was only like one arm in, and your That's other right. arm was completely extended, and he's That's pulling right. on it. And I don't know if you burned your arms out because yeah. you hit a, a wall. That's exactly what happened. I remember this guy, he was he was a Japanese okay. veteran guy, and, and I, I got his back. I got behind him. I suplexed him, you know, and uh, a good suplex. I take his back, and I got the one hook in, and I'm trying to finish the choke, and he just pulled this arm and held it like there. So I'm trying, because I got the one hook. I got two hooks, and I got my right arm choking him. And I knew if I could just get this up behind his head, the fight's over. But he did a very, like, you could just tell that, you know, he'd had a lot of experience because all he did was remain totally calm. He sat there and put two hands on my one arm and just held it. He didn't even try and move. So I was squeezing with all yeah, my your might. Your other arm is, like, right around his neck. And, like, it, it appears you can do a one-arm rear naked choke because of how deep it is. It was very deep, but I could the guy was so relaxed and he turned his head just enough to get his elbow or his chin right where my elbow was. So I couldn't quite, there was a little pocket of air. And that's why I kept trying to adjust. Cause if you could get in the right in the right spot, I could have got it with one arm, but he was very skilled and defensive. He knew he just held my left arm and put his chin in that crook every time. So I'm wasting all my arm strength for about four. It was longer than 90 seconds, but I felt like it was, it was about half the round, at least, I was in that position. Yeah, it was and wild, I, man. I couldn't and, and, finish him. And let, let's also take, you know, take into effect, he's also the former king of pancreas. So th this guy is, in terms of, like, skill level at this time, th this is probably one of the higher-end skilled guys you have fought in your career at this point, including, you know, Nick Diaz. Yeah, this guy was very, very, like... I would say on the ground, man, he was very ground savvy. Like I said, I could just tell from the amount of time I had him in a horrible position and he didn't panic at all, you know, and, and he just stayed relaxed. And he, that's another time when I learned you only really have to go all out when you know you got, and I was trying to make it to where I had him and I was close to getting him a couple of times, but I couldn't quite get it. And so I totally gassed my arms out in that first round. So he gets top position. Um, Takauchi gets top position in the second round. You couldn't get him off of you. 
And in the third round, um, you dominated the stand-up portion. The rest of the round is spent on your back trying to switch positions. And, you know, in in the past, not this fight, there's several instances where you'd be in the corner with a guy, and I should have mentioned this in the first, you know, fight that we broke down. You'd have top position, but it'd be in the corner, but it'd be like a real weird type spot, and you'd be pepper and hammer and, you know, nothing heavy. They would say, break, and then they would stand you guys both up. In instances like this, you guys would go underneath the ring rope and they'd be pounding you and rather they go break, position you, pointing towards center where the other guy would just kind of move you over back underneath the rope again so we can continue stealing time. It was more of like a time-stealing exercise than it was like a thorough ass-kicking. Yeah, I never felt like when I was there I was getting – I never left with like a bunch of black guys and I was getting beat up. It was more just uh, a countdown for the time to be over. So like I said, with them, it was just about winning the fight at all costs, not necessarily, you know, dominating the fight, you know, and if he's holding position, he's winning it. That's all they cared about. Yes. Yeah. So you go to Japan, we receive another, you know, bad result. Yeah. Yeah. And then you come back, and you're, you're taking time off in between fights at this time because your next bout's against Aaron Riley, and we've only got two more fights. The reason I'm taking time off in between is I'm doing pro boxing at the time. Okay. If you look at my pro boxing record, I had 15 fights in this, 15 pro boxing fights in, in, in you know about a three-year period, too. So you're filling that, that, that time gap. Yeah, with, with and like else. I said, I remember one time I had – a pro boxing match, and then I fight, you know, Derek Noble, and then I have another pro boxing match, and those all happen probably within a month. Wow. Maybe five weeks. So they bring you back to fight for the Indiana State title against mm-hmm. Aaron Riley, which is something yeah. that we had talked about in the past, and I had not been able to track the fight down until recently, and Aaron Riley, I'm not going to say you came in as an opponent, Chris, but you didn't have the fireworks display as well as the gladiator with the sword and helmet and shield. Yeah, that I was already in the ring for that. Provided by, I'm sure, the promotion, you know, like Aaron did. And you got announced well, first tonight. I'm going to say that was more of a Jeff Osborne type of guy thing, but whatever. Um, <laughs> we we got to uh, go here. I mean, this is your opportunity to, I mean, if you're no, dumb, man, I'm I, go. I, no, I mean, no, no. we got the green light. In in the divorce, I think Miguel got me. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I didn't walk through, what was it, Toys R Us looking for, like, you know, like gladiator swords and crap. It's like, that's not my style. (laughs) So I'm in the ring, and I'm in the ring, and I see all this going out. There's a big smoke display, and there's a gladiator standing. I was like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) I'm still fighting, right? What's going on? But, you know, I, I get it, man, pageantry, and uh, he was a hometown guy. And I remember, I remember, uh, you know, somebody told me, they're like, man, I just heard uh, over, I heard, uh, who was in his corner? Uh, Matt Hume. Matt Hume. Matt, Hume like, Matt Hume's like, hey, make sure you keep it on your feet against this guy. And I was like, cool. <laughs> so I remember that's what they told us, like, go try to keep it on his feet. But they're like, cool. I'm like, that's what I want to hear because I don't think people – you know, like I said, the 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 people before that, you know, especially in Hooker probably thought I was more of a ground guy. And then this is right around the time when people start after this fight, they start thinking I'm a pure stand-up guy. They thought I was a pro boxer, right? Because 
You know, I remember I went out there and I, I I'm, I'm super fighting with aggressive. the guy. Super and, aggressive. Yeah, because I knew he was going to be there to be hit. I seen him fight. I know the dude could take a punch, but I remember I hit him with a good left hand, a good left hook, pop. And I was like, that hurt him. So uh, I just knew at that point, my left hand is really good, but I remember my right hand's my knockout punch. I knew as soon as I hit him with that good right, you know, and a lot of times you hit a guy with a good punch, you kind of got him hurt, but it's really hard to hit that second punch, the knockout punch, but I was able to land it. And I knew as soon as I landed that good right hand, he was done, you know what I mean? And I knocked him down and I went to hit him again and the referee jumped on me. And I was, I was super excited because, I mean, you know, he would he, he came off that legendary fight against Robbie Lawler. He had a couple legendary fights in the UFC. Steve Berger. Yep. Steve Burger, I mean, he, people weren't able to finish him and, uh, you know, go in there and get that, that first round knockout was huge for me yeah. i was trying i was actively at this point you know i was actively trying to get in ufc because the ufc at the you know zufa had bought him and i remember as soon as like i, I told you how i wasn't really happy about the ufc when i fought for him and i remember like two fights afterwards zufa bought him and my friends told me hey man have you watched ufc lately and i'm like new owners they put some money in it this thing's different now and i started watching it and i was like oh Oh yeah, th- th- okay. I'm interested again. And then I saw, you know, fights like Robbie Lawler versus Aaron. Ryan. I was like, I definitely want to be part of this. I got to get back in here. But then it, it, you can't just call and they say okay. You know what I mean? So I was trying to get in, but it was just tough. Well, Aaron, I mean, not only did you did you stop him, and he's known for his chin. I mean, you're talking about a guy that's got his jaw broken on three different occasions. And the fight got stopped in between rounds by the doctor after going a good full round, round and a half with that broken jaw. So you made an incredible statement and you, the way you did it too, you folded them underneath the ropes. Like there was, there was no question in regards to the stoppage. And Miguel, I think this is the time where you talk about the extracurricular activities that took place between the families that Chris doesn't like talking about. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think I think we got it broken down to that Aaron came in with his girlfriend from Washington because he was living out in Washington there, and she did some kickboxing. And I don't know if it's Chris's girlfriend or Chris's sister, but they got into it too. And they, they, I think we got about a minute out, out of that before that got broken up. So you know, <laughs> hey, all I know is there was about you know. Whoever was in Evansville, what do you have? Eight hundred people there, and I and I had about four. Yeah, <laughs> my four were the my four were the only people cheering at the end of this. You know, so Chris, like, ah, nobody wanted me to win besides my quarterman and my four people. And uh, with them yelling, I think that caused some problems, and uh, that's when the extracurricular activity started. So, in essence, Aaron Riley is Jeff Osborne's guy. You win. Chris had re- mentioned that when the divorce happened, um, Miguel inherits Chris, obviously. I mean, we're doing this. And, um, I paid for that damn clavicle fix, so God damn yeah, it, I deserve yeah. it. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. And the Lytles, it's safe to say you guys went 2-0 and that night. Is that correct? No, I mean, uh, it wasn't. I think it was my sister-in-law, actually, because she's got a bit of a mouth on her. And uh, I don't even know what happened there, man. I was too happy. Just uh, I was doing my thing in the ring, jumping around and, uh, you know, celebrating. And uh, I don't know what happened out there. Besides, all, all I saw at the end was them kind of getting escorted out. I was like, eh, yeah, right, I, guess yeah. I'll, I guess I'll leave. <laughs> I think that one officially goes down as an old contest. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah. fair enough, fair uh, enough. 
All right, well, this brings us to our last fight, Chris. You know, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, your next trip is out to Pancrase, and this closes out oh. your tenure uh, in <laughs> Japan. And yeah. um, you fight Koji Oishi, and gloves, no shin pads at this time as well. They've kind of adapted into yeah. the American skill set in regards to rules, and you drop a split decision against him. Well, like I said, I wish no shin pads. I wish I'd had knee pads. Like I said, I get hit with that knee right away, closest I think I've ever been to being knocked out in an MMA fight because I, I like throwing a right hand to being on the ground. You're like, what happened? But I mean, I just, I, I get up. I'm like, oh shit, he, he's you know he's on top. And I can hear Phil shit going, get him, Keith, help him. Yeah. He's like, oh, he's like, what do you mean? <laughs> what what can I do? You know? And I'm like, Man. Chris, you could hear it. You could hear it on the uh, uh, on the audio. I you got to turn it up really loud. And his manager Phyllis Lee is saying that he's killing him, Kate. To your corner, Save man. Save him, Kate. The, like, Save yeah, him. He, I mean, yeah, because he hit me with that like a jumping knee, and uh, I'm just happy I didn't get knocked out. This told and showed me that a man I can take because like I never even saw it. I, I mean, I had a look on there. I didn't. Even, I mean, okay, okay, so what takes place is. You can kind of gauge because the, the rule set's constantly evolving over in Japan, particularly Pancrase. He's got wrestling shoes on. So they used to allow kicks to the head with wrestling shoes, but open hand palm strikes to the face. So now with gloves, and they've kind of changed around, there's no kicks to the head. So you have to assume just based on that, there's not going to be much you know, leg movement in terms of kicks. Yeah. And he runs out and throws a flying knee and at the very last second you see it and you kind of go with the same direction rather than into it and i think that's what saved you from getting uh highlight real knockout yeah. well i never saw it to be honest with you so i don't know if that's just what happened i would have thrown right hand maybe i backed up for the right hand but i mean i wouldn't throw right hand next thing i know i'm on the ground I'm like where, where the hell and then he jumps on starts hitting me so i pull him in and i end up getting on top and, you know it was kind of after that, I was still a little dazed after the, probably the whole fight, but I felt like it was a little back and forth action. I'm sure he won the first round because. No. Know. No, you won the first round. Really? Okay. Yes. Other than that, that opening exchange. All right. So I, I'm looking at it, and this is another one of those times where you're, you're actually in the corner, you're, you're peppering them. You could ride the entire round out here. He can't move anywhere. You've just got him like in this strange position and the ropes are not interfering at all. It's just, he's stuck and yeah. you're peppering, peppering and you're on top for about two, two and a half minutes and the referee goes break and they stand <laughs> you guys up again, rather than allow you guys to continue. Believe it or not. I think you won that first round because okay. he didn't do anything other than the minute it hit the ground. You're just, your internal instincts were there and allowed you to gain top position. Okay. Okay. I, could, yeah, I couldn't I, remember. I, I want you to consider the possibility too that, you know, Phyllis Lee, as Mike pointed out, the manager there, a little rough around the edges. She may have been trying to distract the referee for Keith to hand you brass knuckles because oh. that's, that's how they did it in the old days, you know. I would have taken <laughs> I would say that, point, but I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I remember, like I said, I, I've lost five split decisions in my career, and I had a lot of draws and, and, and a couple of majority decisions. A lot of them were over in Japan. So, 
I mean, that part didn't do my career any help. It was a tough time over there. Uh, a lot of learning went on, but I mean, you know, um, it, you, it, it, it made you a better fighter. I think we okay. can both agree. 100%. And I've been through, I think it made for a different level of mental toughness. And I think it has got me ready for when I did go to the UFC. You know, I was just different than most of the guys there. You know, so yeah. it was just a little bit. Let's keep in mind also Oishi is one and one against the Diaz brothers. So he is no joke. You're in that co-main event status yeah. once again. And on that second and third round, like I had described before, what took place earlier in your career, yeah. he kept positioning you outside of the ring, stealing more time, stealing more time. And I, it didn't look like there was a big size difference between you two, but there yeah. was uh, an advantage in terms of wrestling. And it was on Oishi's side. He kept, yeah. using top position just to he, he stole time he didn't beat you up he stole time yeah like i said i never felt like when i go with i'd leave beat up or anything and it was just most more frustrating that they were you know just trying to eke out the decision it definitely made me think of you know uh, how i did not want to fight you know what i mean i wanted to be the opposite and that's kind of eventually how my career turned out is being known for a guy who doesn't want to fight like that that had a lot to do with it you know when that happens uh I, I don't only feel like I didn't, it's just a, it's just a frustrating feeling the whole time. And I didn't want to be that kind of a guy. I mean, to me, like I said, this wasn't, there's more to it than just trying to go out there and eke out a win. I, I never liked that. And I never want to be like that. So, and that winds up the Chris Lytle pancreas years. Miguel, yeah. I'm done. Uh, you know, uh, I think that's our 50th podcast, our 50th interview. And I think that, you know, we're starting to get a following. A lot of people are looking at it. But this is your chance to really meet the pilot here of this project. And that's Chris Lytle. You know, he's been asking the interviews and showing you flashes and stuff. But here, I think you really get to know the man. And I think he's right. At this point in his career, a lot of experience, and it just battle-tested him for a real run in the UFC. The UFC had stepped up their game. To go back, Chris was going to have to, and right here, we're about to leave him off as Chris Lytle is a world-class athlete. Thank you, Chris. Well, hey, I want to thank you guys for not – I mean, geez, you guys do so much work for this and make this happen. It's awesome. Mike, your interviews are, I mean, unbelievable. Miguel, the back stuff you're doing. Thank you. But I mean, anybody watching, man, I, I love this. And uh, if you guys have any questions about anything, man, just hit me up or hit Mike up, Miguel. Um, you know, make sure I want to get these stories out here. If we don't keep doing this stuff, these stories are going to die. People are not going to know any of these uh, very interesting stories from the old school days. And I love a lot of the guys we get on here. We're getting some really, we're getting some gems and you guys got to listen to them and, and keep them going. So uh, like, subscribe share do all that stuff for me yeah a lot, of, a lot of times there is a record of this stuff there's who showed up and what they weighed and who won but a lot of times that's not even accurate and it leaves you with more questions than answers so th this is this is just phenomenal i, I love what you guys do uh th thanks for being so consistent with it i mean and, and you know jonah i mean for those listeners at home and you know i was gonna put this Anytime that I need something here within the Chicagoland area, this guy on his own time, on his own dime, clears his schedule and, and you know, makes way for us. We got a Shoney Carter interview coming up. We knew there'd be some kind of difficulties with it. Jonah did everything on his own in order to help make sure that took place. So, you know, I, Jonah, a world of thank you to you as well, man. 
Yeah, now he's one of us, man. Jonah, thanks for everything. <laughs> thanks for joining us to, so we could grill Chris. I think we got a lot of good info there. We're going yeah. on nearly three hours, so I'm going to... Oh, with, with guys that very few people have information on here in the United States, too, I might add. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yep, yep. Thanks, guys. Congratulations on 50. Well, Mike, uh, just got done. I see we just got done with the uh, deep dive with Chris Lytle, and, uh, you know, hey, Chris is a star for a reason, man. <laughs> Well, he came prepared, man. Like, yeah. when we do our little roadmaps and our preparation, um, on this one, we didn't include Chris. Like, I sent him a couple pictures of what I was looking at, and he was flipping out. So that was the only preparation that we had with Chris. You know, you and I kind of handled everything because we kind of like that. I know it might sound cheesy, but the element of surprise, because it's the emotion we're getting is, is real and raw. Yeah, I think it's going to come across. You're going to see it in the interview. Um, once again, this is an interview that if you can get out to the YouTube channel, like, subscribe, comment and stuff. It does have a visual aspect, thanks to Jehu Media and the work you know Mike has put in with networking and things. Uh, there's some things that you can see there and footage that you can actually see about what we're talking about. So that's a plus. That's something special for the 50th podcast. And, uh, you know, uh, I think from there... If you're downloading it on, on uh, iTunes or any of the uh, podcasts, you're not going to see it. It may be worth your time later visiting us on YouTube as well. But still, almost three hours with Chris Lytle talking about basically a lost lost area uh, of, the, of the fight history. And that's uh, Japan and the Pancreas years in the 90s. So uh, thank you, Chris, as usual. And uh, we'll see you for the next interview. Thank <laughs> you.